A quick note before we begin, our 2021 FBS team profiles will be released to our Tier 2 Patreon supporters on April 12th. In addition to over 10,000 individual player ratings, ratings for every head coach and coordinator, and full season and single game projections for all 130 FBS teams, we have also nearly doubled the amount of information on our team pages to include more stats, rankings, and metrics. And as always, we make daily updates to our depth charts based on injuries, transfers, and other personnel news. Visit patreon.com slash cfbwinningedge to join. Sign up as an annual subscriber to receive 18% off or two months free. Welcome back, everybody. It's CFU Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFU Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter at CFU Winning Edge and Xavier Trish. Follow him on the Twitter at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. And we are on to the next group of team, gentlemen. It is 50 through 41. Today, we start with NC State. Who had a very good year last year, finished eight and four, 35th ranked recruiting class in the nation, but is only seventh in the ACC. That's kind of what happens. You know, we get these more impressive recruiting classes for these higher teams, but they're kind of mid tier in their own Power Five conference here. Uh, eight transfers out for them, four transfers in, including a four star cornerback in Cyrus Fagan from Florida State. They do return three all conference uh, players, two specialists here. So I know Nick is very excited about that. Uh, linebacker Peyton Wilson joins kicker Chris Dunn and punter Trenton Gill for that. They did have two guys leave for the NFL, tight end Kerry Angeline and Ali McNeil. Uh, Joker Phillips uh, comes in as a new wide receiver coach. He was the Maryland co-offensive coordinator and receivers coach last season. So, Nick, tell us what you think about NC State moving into 2021 here. Well, NC State was a team that uh, we were just talking a little bit before we hit record about sort of how our numbers saw certain teams uh, last season compared to where the market does. And there's one team later on in, in this list today that was a, a weekly topic of conversation because it seemed like our numbers just didn't really like them very much. Uh, NC State was kind of on the other end of that spectrum. We thought that NC State could uh, certainly bounce back, uh, and it you know it, it worked out that way. They had several you know close wins. Uh, it, it was a record, a final record that I don't want to say inflated, but it, it's it's possible that the final record looked a little bit better, I think, than NC State might have actually been. And, and uh, part of that is, is you know, our, our team performance ratings, our, uh, our numbers that we, we pay a lot of attention to stat-wise. And, and NC State was, uh, was, was, you know, pretty good. But a team that finished 60th in our, our rankings, you know, this is a team that 
uh, spent a little time in the AP top 25. This is a team that, you know, eight wins. Generally, you're thinking uh, a team maybe in the 30s, maybe uh, having a chance to, you know, break into that top 25. And, and according to our numbers, though, we liked NC State a lot on a weekly basis. Uh, it was more so matchups. It wasn't really just the overall strength of the team. And I, I think that, you know, the numbers kind of bear that out. They were in the 40s and most of our uh, advanced numbers that we often point to, uh, you know, uh, net yards per play, they were 47th. Uh, that's a weighted number uh, from Brian Frumo. Uh, also his points per drive numbers that are weighted for, you know, throw out uh, garbage time and, and FCS opponents. They ranked 55th in, in net points per drive. They were 61st in expected points added margin. So uh, 67th on the offensive side, 49th on the defensive side. Those are courtesy of Parker Fleming and, and CFBGraphs.com. And then, you know, 56th in net success rate. Also, Parker's numbers there help us out. And then 38th just in raw uh, net yards per pass attempt. So, you know, very uh, right in line with kind of that, you know, 50s, 60s final ranking that we had and and you know they finished 57th in overall team performance 54th offensively 62nd on defense they weren't great on the offensive line finished 80th in our offensive line performance numbers finished 47th on the defensive uh line as well so you know they were just kind of a uh as far as overall strength a fairly mediocre team and they played a a uh, pretty manageable schedule had several close wins uh, won a, a you know kind of a thriller against Wake Forest, against Pitt had a one point win, uh, close against Liberty. They were able to block a field goal, potential game winning field goal to pick up a win over uh, a ranked Liberty team. So you know they they were very close to being a little bit closer to uh, 500 in, in that final record, and then you know had a couple of close losses as well. So you could argue that that maybe you know that evens itself out, had a three-point loss to Miami and a two-point loss to Kentucky in the bowl game, though that was maybe a, a little closer in the final score than the game actually uh, would indicate. But, you know, you mentioned a lot of the names in and out, and there are some pretty important ones. There's also, you know, Bailey Hockman ended up being the leading passer, uh, ended up, you know, starting quarterback, uh, though he was, you know, technically the backup to – uh, Devin Leary, but was able to, to start the season because Leary was impacted by uh, COVID very early on, missed a few games there, and then had an injury later in the year. Hawkman ended up playing a lot, but he's off to Middle Tennessee. They've got a deep running back group. Zonovan Knight, very good. Ricky Person, uh, very talented, uh, had you know some injury issues during his career there. They've got some talented receivers. Amika Mizi, very good. Thayer Thomas has uh, you know had some success in the past. Devin Carter, I think, is very very talented. Was able to start as a true freshman. So you know there are really some pieces offensively. If Leary is able to come in and, and be fully healthy, you think uh, that NC State is going to be a little bit better offensively. So moving up from you know the 50s and, and 40s and a lot of those uh, numbers to you know maybe closer to an actual top 25 offense. I think the offensive line is going to be uh, really quite good. They've got you know a, a super rising star in Akeem Ikwanu, uh 
uh, who, you know, Bruce Feldman wrote a, a piece on him talking about how a lot of NFL scouts would be looking at, at different games, different players, and he would just pop out, you know, on the screen. So he's somebody that already is a, a very early name for potentially some first round 2021 buzz. And, and then NC State, typically, you know, find some really good defensive line. So I think they'll be a little bit better maybe on the, the line of scrimmage moving forward. And they've got some work to do, uh, you know, defensively. They, they I think the secondary is a, a little bit of an area of concern for me, you know, moving forward. But, I, you know, I, I think NC State had a very solid season, a great bounce back season. I think they've got an opportunity to uh, carry some, uh, you know, positive momentum into next year. I think they picked up uh, some very important transfers in addition to to Fagan, the, the Florida State transfer. Uh, Corey Durden, multiple year starter on the, the uh, defensive line there for for Florida State, and then uh, they did pick up a well-traveled defensive back, Derek Pitts from Marshall, who had previously been at West Virginia, to to hopefully help solidify that unit a little bit. So I think NC State is a team that uh, potentially overachieved a little bit in uh, 2020, where you know had some some very beneficial matchups, but I think they are a team that will be a solid you know, week to week, uh, a challenger next uh, next year in, in the uh, ACC. I think they're a team that, you know, will be a tough out on a weekly basis. It, it looks like the, you know, schedule gets a little bit tougher, play Clemson, have to go to Boston College, have to go to Miami, uh, you know, have to play North Carolina, of course, uh, at the very end of the season. But like a lot of the ACC teams we've talked about already, not necessarily a, uh, super daunting schedule. You're not writing down just a ton of automatic losses. Probably not going to beat Clemson, but even you know Miami is a, a winnable game. They had uh, a, a very close uh, shootout, came up just short against them last year. North Carolina, of course, we expect to be a, a challenger in the ACC next season, but uh, not a team that you know, at least from a, a early season standpoint, it looks a, a lot more experienced or polished. They'll probably have things figured out maybe by the end of the year. But I think that's a, a game that NC State, of course, a rivalry, end of season, all of that. Uh, it, it's a game that we probably won't expect them to be a, a super heavy underdog in. So I think that it's possible NC State puts up a similar record next year. Uh, the non-conference is, you know, at Mississippi State's kind of a tough game. Louisiana Tech's always kind of a sneaky, tough G5 opponent. But uh, bowl game certainly, I think, is is achievable. Uh, probably would be a big disappointment if they don't make it to a bowl game. But uh, certainly a shot at, at something like eight wins uh, looking ahead to 2021. What do you think, Xavier? Is this team good enough to win eight and, and go into a, a decent bowl? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that this, and, and, and kind of hitting on what Nick said earlier, you know, I think there's a team that can start the season on four and one. I'll be perfectly honest with you. You know, they start off with USF uh, at Mississippi State, Furman, Clemson, and Louisiana Tech. That all comes before their bye week. I think they, they can start four and one. And if they're able to do that and win the game that they're supposed to win in that early part of the schedule, then it 
makes those games against Boston College, Miami, and North Carolina not as daunting. Uh, I don't think NC State's in a place where they're challenging for the ACC title this year. Uh, but I do think that they're one of one of the teams that definitely can finish seven, eight wins, possibly even maybe sneak a nine win in there if they beat a team like a Boston College or a Miami. Uh, but when you look at the rest of the ACC, they're kind of going in the opposite direction. The ACC lost a bunch of talent around the middling teams this year. Teams like them, uh, we talked about Georgia Tech in previous episodes, are getting better uh, in this year instead of losing talent. You know, they only lose one guy. They lose two guys on offense uh, at tight end and at right guard. And on defense, they return everybody. And I think that that's a major key for them going into next year is that they're going to have depth and they're going to have people returning at pretty much every position for the most part, like I said, except outside of right guard and tight end. So, well, and McNeil up front on the defensive line. He, he set out the bowl game, so he's not okay. in our, our depth charts there. But, uh, mm. but you know, they brought in Durden and, and yeah, a lot of a lot of guys coming back and then added some to the transfer portal for sure. Uh, but I think that's probably where they are looking to make a bigger step is at the quarterback position. That'll be the reason why they make a bowl game or why they do not make a bowl game this year is that quarterback position. They haven't really figured it out, let's be honest, probably since Ryan Finley. Uh, at the quarterback position, and I think that that's something that they've been really searching for since then. And, and you, we saw the kind of success they were able to have when all they had back there was a consistent quarterback. They, they, they didn't, you know, Ryan Philly didn't set the world alight by any means, but a guy that they could put in there every week in and week out and understand what the, he was going to give them. Nick hit it right on the head. NC State's always going to put out decent or are good to very good uh, defensive line talent. You know, Bradley Chubb is the, one of the first names that come to mind, but I know there's several others. And, and so from a defensive perspective, I'm not really worried. That offense, skill position-wise, I'm not worried either. It's more so just at that quarterback position. And like I said, they can start the season off 4-1. and one. It'll be when they get in the ACC play, barring the Clemson game, that they will either make it or break it, and it'll be at that quarterback position. Scott, you hit it right on the head with, uh, with the – with their recruiting class, excuse me. They're getting better in the recruiting class. I know it doesn't seem like it because they still finished seventh in the ACC and they finished seventh last year, but we need to be really looking when it comes to these now 50 teams below, we're looking more so for the national number and to see how they compete with teams that are around their, uh, around them. And that's more so than just in their conference because of, once again, you have some of those major names that we'll be talking about in the top 25, like a UNC, like a, uh, or in teams that are just, big-time recruiters like a Miami, like a Florida State, that still bring in big-time talent, even though they may not have uh, or have had nearly as good of a season as an NC State. Now, the next team we're moving to here, and this is it's interesting the way these teams break as far as the recruiting class go, but uh, it's Western Michigan, who were 4-2 and two last year, 98th-ranked recruiting class, mm -hmm. which is 7th in the MAC, which is not very good in the MAC. I mean, we just talked mm -hmm. about – 35th and 7th in the ACC for NC State, but they have a lot of returning production. Uh, six transfers out, only one guy coming in, but they returned a lot of all-conference players, running back Ladarius Jefferson, wide receiver Sky Moore, left guard Mike uh, Caliendo, defensive end Ali Fayed, uh, nose guard Ralph Holly, and safety Bryson Gamer all returned who were all-conference last year. Um, wide receiver Dwayne Eskridge and offensive tackle Jalen Moore are out to the NFL. They got a new tight end coach from Western Kentucky. So uh, Western Michigan, like we said, Nick, not the best recruiting class, even in the MAC, but return a lot of good players uh, for a team that was four and two last year. Yeah, and and Western Michigan has a pretty solid 
base of talent to work with. They, uh, you know, when PJ Fleck was there, they were consistently among the the best recruiters in the MAC, and and then Tim Lester inherited a really talented roster. I would argue maybe has underachieved a little bit uh, during his tenure, but last year looked pretty good for the most part, at least started uh, really strong, had the incredible uh, last second uh, comeback against Toledo, but, uh, you know, lost two at the end of the season and and kind of put a little bit of a damper on things. But according to our numbers, Western Michigan was one of the best offenses in college football last year. They ranked sixth in our offensive team performance rankings. Uh, and like we've said with a lot of MAC teams, that is a little bit uh, inflated because they played an, an all-MAC schedule last year, but they were very explosive. Caleb Ellaby, uh, you know, stat line, the, the quarterback had a, an incredible year, uh, 1,700 passing yards, 18 to two touchdown to interception ratio, averaged over 11 uh, yards per pass attempt, which is, you know, uh, among the national, I mean, that's like Kyler Murray and and uh, Baker Mayfield type numbers. I mean, that those are traditionally, if you get to 11, you're one, two, three at, at the very least <laughs> in the national leaderboard. So, uh, you know, to do that, and then he also had four rushing touchdowns. Great, great uh, spot, you know, great opportunity for him to build upon that. Will lose, of course, as you mentioned, Dwayne Eskridge, who was one of my favorite receivers to watch in college football last year, just blazing speed, ran away from guys. And, you know, there are playmakers who return. Basically, the entire uh, rushing attack will be back. Ladarius Jefferson was a, a, you know, a transfer who came in and ended up leading the team in rushing. But Sean Tyler uh, was actually the the starter there, and and those guys shared some carries. Jackson Kincaid, another transfer, got in the mix as well. So they've got a lot of bodies at running back, and you know at receiver they've got uh, Sky Moore, who had a really excellent 2019 season. Took a, a little bit of a step back with Eskridge coming back from an injury, but you know was a, a, a fre- fringe freshman All American type guy as a redshirt freshman in, in 2019. Jalen Hall, a big target, 6'4", actually led the team in uh, touchdown catches had had or excuse me one behind Eskridge Eskridge at eight he had seven but you expect that he'll have a, a you know a bigger role and and then Deshaun Bustle is a pretty talented uh, rising junior as well returning starter there so uh, I think that Western Michigan though the recruiting numbers aren't necessarily trending in the right direction maybe they're not as talented uh, from a, a recruiting standpoint as they were when Fleck left to go to Minnesota, I think Western Michigan will be a top three and, and pretty close to number one as far as our roster strength numbers go. We're, we're in the mix still trying to final, uh, finalize our MAC numbers, but it's looking like they're going to be top three as far as just overall talent in the MAC. And and so uh, the offense is, I think, in in great, great hands, even with Eskridge gone. The defense had some injuries to to guys like you mentioned. Uh, Fayed, an all-MAC guy, was uh, held to four games last year. Ralph Hawley was, was limited last year. But those guys are, you know, both 100 max-rated players, according to our individual player 
ratings. They've just been incredibly productive, have played a lot of football uh, for Western Michigan. And then, you know, the secondary uh, might not have the the best of the best numbers. They, uh, you know, averaged uh, or excuse me, ranked 56th in, in yards per play or excuse me, yards per pass attempt allowed, 62nd in yards per play allowed, 106th in EPA per play defensively. But the secondary is uh, very experienced. They're going to start probably four out of five guys are seniors or super seniors, including a couple of transfers from Power 5 schools. So I like the front of the defense. I, I think the back of the defense has, uh, you know, some real potential and, and should perhaps get a little bit of a, a boost from experience. I, I am a slightly concerned that Treshawn Hayward, who uh, was another, you know, 90 plus rated player, according to our numbers uh, at linebacker was their leading tackler. He's transferred to Arizona. So he'll be a, uh, you know, they will miss him certainly, but I think overall, there are very few uh, major weak spots for Western Michigan. There's really not there. You know, if you're thinking of a uh, kind of equated to a, a baseball lineup, there are few uh, easy outs throughout the, the, the different positions and, and units. They've got some talent everywhere. They've got some experience everywhere. They're going to stack up pretty well in the Mac, but the schedule is tough and it's, it's sort of, built in a very uh unfortunate way if you're if you're western michigan you start out against michigan that's an opportunity for a big time upset but it's a game that you probably should lose they also play pit on the road they also play san jose state uh defending mac uh, you know mountain west champs and then the first four games in conference play and this is all before they get a bye uh they don't have their off week until uh, October 30th, but uh, opening MAC play with Buffalo and Ball State, the two MAC, you know, teams that played in the MAC championship game last year. Kent State, top scoring offense in the country last season, and then Toledo, who we mentioned last week, probably we think will be our highest rated MAC team in our power rankings. So, I mean, that's a a tough, tough way to start. There's every possibility. You know, Western Michigan might be 500 or worse by the time they get to that uh, bye week. But if if they can navigate that, if they can, uh, you you know, if that offense stays explosive, if that defense takes a step forward uh, with a, a healthy, you know, healthy group of guys there, if you get through that and, you know, we're three and one in Mac play by the time you get to that bye week, Western Michigan, you know, might at that point, uh, be, uh, you know, in position to make it to the MAC championship game, compete for a, a MAC title. But I really don't like the way that schedule sets up. I think it's built to get kind of beat up early, not have very much rest. Uh, it, it, that, that's tough. That's tough. We're going to have to see how our numbers react to that. We don't necessarily, you know, put, put, uh, rest and, and, uh, buys and, and things like that. Those don't really impact our weekly projections, but, you know, we, we just kind of have to keep in the back of our mind that that's a, a very difficult first half uh, to really first two thirds of the season for, for Western Michigan. So I think they have the potential to be a Mac contender. I think they are talented enough, experienced enough, but that, that schedule looking ahead really, really kind of scares me a bit. What do you think, Xavier? Rough schedule, uh, but a good team coming back. So uh, kind of a mixed bag here. 
Yeah, I mean, when, when Nick was talking, the, the only team I could think about that had like a similar schedule over the last couple of years was like a Tennessee, how they would start off with like Florida, Alabama, and Georgia. And so by the time they got to their bye week, it was like the season was over <laughs> because they literally got beat around like ragdolls. And now they get the rest of the SEC, but it's too late now. And that's exactly how I look at the, this Western Michigan schedule. Not only are these games tough games from just a talent-based standpoint, but these are going to be universities that are – Physical. I mean, Pitt, Pitt is no slouch. Even if they win that game, they're going to have to win it with a very physical – it's going to be a very physical matchup. Michigan is going to be a very physical matchup. Once again, even if they win that game, they're going to have to play it in a very physical manner. San Jose State, maybe not as much, but then you get right into the MAC, like Nick was saying, with, with Buffalo, very physical team, Ball State, uh, and Kent State as well. Is, you know, It's just not very rewarding for a team – like them, who I think could compete for the MAC if their schedule wasn't so daunting. I'll be honest with you. I mean, but otherwise, I think this is a you know an eight win, nine win team. Uh, Nick, if they're able to get, if they're able to finish three and one in the non conference schedule, then I will agree with you. They can win the MAC because uh, they would have proved a lot to me if they can go ahead and win on the road at Pitt, beat you know the Mountain West Conference, the reigning Mountain West Conference champion, and, and beat the Illinois State team. And even if they lose close to a Michigan, then that would be something that I would definitely look forward to as a barometer for them going into the year. Uh, it, it's just so tough to, to, to say that a team is going to be able to run the table through Buffalo, Ball State, Kent State, and then Toledo before you know they get to quote-unquote easier games when we're talking about the Mac of all conferences. It never – any game is ever easy. So, I mean, I, it's, it's just a really tough situation for them. Outside of that, though, I think they have the team that's good enough to do it you know, I, 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 you know, you replace Dwayne Eskridge with Sky Moore, one five nine receiver for another five nine receiver. I think it's, it's going to be another team. It's going to be one of those teams that they just have to stick together. And if they can stay healthy, which I think is their number one, is going to be the number one question mark for them. Because when you have a bye week so late in the year, you're crawling to the finish. I mean, you, you know, you play what was it seven straight games before finally getting a break you're crawling through those last four games. And that makes you very susceptible to upset losses due to fatigue, little nagging injuries like ankles and hamstrings. And, and I know we don't necessarily look at rest as a, you know, as a component when we're talking about, you know, the, uh, the possibility of them winning, but that's going to be, uh, in my opinion, that's going to be huge for them, especially against like Toledo and Kent state. Kent state's going to want to run up and down the field. Do they, will they have the bodies by that point to be able to do that? You know, so especially coming off of a year where you only played, you know, a certain amount of games, you didn't play a full schedule, are guys going to be prepared for, you know, it's going to feel like the longest season of their life. After coming off of such a short one to play a full normal schedule, it's going to feel longer and feel harder over the duration um, of the year. So that's a, a big question mark for me with Western Michigan. Uh, outside of that, like I said, I think this could be an eight-win, nine-win ball club, even with all that being said. All right, next team up here is Tulsa. They were 6-3 and three last year. Another one with a low-ranked recruiting class, 127th overall, 11th in the AAC. Three transfers out, three transfers in, but they do return a bunch of all ACC, AAC players here. And wide receiver Keelan Stokes, left tackle Tyler Smith, right tackle Chris Paul, nose tackle, Jack, nose tackle Jackson player, a linebacker Justin Wright, cornerback Christian Williams, and another kicker in Zach Long. Uh, they did lose two big pieces of their team in quarterback Zach Smith and edge rusher Zayvon Collins off to the NFL. Uh, smattering of new coaches, 2-3 on the defensive side, Nick. What do you think of Tulsa for 2021? 
So Tulsa is going to be a, a pretty tricky team to project. I think our numbers were pretty low on Tulsa for most of the, you know, in the, the preseason months and, and early on the season, it took a little while for our numbers to really respect Tulsa and they were, you know, a, a top 20 most improved team. They were the 18th most improved team in our team performance rankings last year. And a big part of that was defense. They ended up, you know, statistically having a, a very, very strong defense and, and it kind of, you know, carried them a little bit. They had some real slow starts, uh, had a lot of come from behind wins, fourth quarter comebacks uh, where the offense just wasn't really, couldn't really get going the first half, the first uh, three quarters sometimes, but they were able to do enough to put themselves in position to compete for a conference title. And, you know, they were overall a, a pretty solid team. Like I said, defensively, uh, you know, they ranked 10th in our defensive team performance rankings. They actually ranked 36th in overall team performance, which is, is fairly impressive, uh, I think, given you know, uh, one, they had a lot of stops and starts. They were one of those teams that uh, it was difficult to get on the field in back-to-back -back weeks just for the variety of reasons everybody had to deal with in, in 2020. But they put together a, a really solid run. I mean, after giving Oklahoma State everything it could handle in their uh, opening week uh, to knock off UCF, who we said time and time again, we thought was a top 15 team coming into the season uh, and then played, you know, really, really well. We're very, very fortunate, had a, a fortunate uh, set of circumstances where they were able to beat East Carolina and then, you know, close win against SMU, close win and double overtime against Tulane, uh, held Navy to, to six points, played Cincinnati uh, as, as close as any team all year and then uh, had an opportunity to, to beat uh, an SEC opponent in the bowl game, ended up coming up a little bit short there. But, you know, very, very competitive team, very difficult for an opponent to play its best game against Tulsa. So I, I was pretty impressed with Tulsa, both watching and in, you know, some of the ways uh, that their performance was was reflected in our numbers. You know, some of the, the highlights, top five in yards per uh, play allowed. Uh, they were top 20 in EPA per play defensively, points per drive defensively, and then top 10 in yards per pass attempt allowed and in success rate against. Uh, so, you know, they were a, a very, very good defense and overall a very tough team. You mentioned a lot of guys coming back and they're even getting uh, some extra guys. Shamari Brooks at running back, who was the, the starter you know, multi-year starter, uh, a guy who has had a lot of success, a lot of production. He's coming in to replace Corey Taylor II, who's off to the NFL draft. T.K. Wilkerson, who also had a solid year, uh, kind of semi-starter, backup running back. He has uh, said his, his uh, career is over quote unquote. So I guess he's retiring. Not sure if that's medical or, or what have you, but uh, definitely some change over there at the running back position. But the two I'm most concerned with, and, and there aren't very many holes, but these two are the, the biggest. Zach Smith at quarterback, and then, you know, the All-American linebacker, Zayvon Collins, as you mentioned. So uh, I, I think that Tulsa will be able to, you know, st stay competitive week to week. I think somewhat similar to NC State, based on so many close wins, 
I think it would be, uh, you know, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be uh, the, the smartest thing to do to expect this Tulsa team to take another step forward. I, I think that this is the the sort, you know, there's sort of two two routes you can take with a, a team that has won so many close games. You could you think of a, a program building like, okay, you know, if it's uh, year one, you get blown out. Year two, you lose close. Year three, you win close. Year four, you win big. That's one scenario. Will Tulsa be able to win big in, in 2021? I don't necessarily see that. I see it more as, you know, had a lot of close wins one year. Maybe expect a little bit of regression the next that that maybe they were you know fortunate in some spots they they certainly earned every win that they got I guess you could argue maybe that East Carolina win maybe maybe not but uh, the 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 way it played out I just I, I have a feeling that it's going to be difficult for them to replicate so many close losses or take a step forward based on the big losses and it's only a you know a handful but. The, the big personnel losses they've gotten. Plus, the schedule is really, really difficult. I mean, you're talking about, you know, we, we were mentioning the, the Western Mich- Michigan start to the season. You know, Tulsa, though they do have an FCS opponent in week one, UC Davis, then they play Oklahoma State and Ohio State back-to-back uh, on the road both games. That That's a pretty difficult uh, place to start. Arkansas State is not going to be an, an easy win. Houston and Memphis are your first two American Conference opponents. So, you know. Cincinnati's still on the schedule. Tulane's always tricky. SMU to, to finish. Three of the, the last five games are on the road. Not a, not a well-built schedule for Tulsa to, to really take that next step, I don't think. I, I do think that this is a team that will probably play a lot of close games again and probably a team that we should expect will get back to a bowl game, You know, should have a, a great chance at a winning season because they are a top half to, to maybe top quarter uh, American conference uh, program. But I just, something in, in my gut, and I, I try to, I guess, not rely too much on my my gut and, and let our numbers speak. And, and we'll see what they say here in, in about 13 days when, when they'll be ready to publish. But uh, I just, I have a feeling that Tulsa might take a small step back in, in 2021. Xavier Tulsa for 2021. Do you think they're going to take the step back too? I mean, uh, you know, like, like Nick said, lots leaving. Um, uh, they have a decent amount coming back, but the recruiting class is a little brutal too. Small step back, Nick. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to be small. I'll be honest with you. I think when you when you uh, when you look at this Tulsa team, yes, they went six and three last year. So I, I don't know when when Nick says small, he might mean six and six, or he might mean five and seven, you know, he's, he, 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 I don't think he's projecting for them to be, you know, a, a, a four win ball club. But when you play it, when you win games that close, the luck has to run out at some point, you know, and, and so you look at their schedule coming into this year and firstly, Ohio state and Oklahoma state in the same year, how that that's just and back to back weeks by that man, that that's awful to start your year off with. And and then Arkansas State's no slouch either. And so it's going to be a tough start for them this year. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Luckily for them, they do get to avoid teams. They do get to avoid UCF this year, uh, who I think will be better. Um, they were last year. You know, they they unfortunately, they still have to do Cincinnati. Uh, Memphis, we've talked about 
uh, in, in a previous episode may be worse after losing some of, a lot of their talent as well. Uh, SMU will probably take a step back too. And I think that that will help them in the long run. I still see this team, like I said with Nick, I, I think this team is – Maybe you know, maybe I'm a little bit more harsh. I think this is a four to five win ball club where Nick might think they finish 500. But I genuinely do not see them being able to continue to live on the edge of their seat like this again for another year. Especially when they're losing so much of, they're not losing a lot of talent from the standpoint of a mass exodus of players, but they are losing important players. You know, they're losing their starting quarterback. They're losing their best defensive player. They're losing their starting running back. It's not necessarily the amount, but it's, you know, replacing that production. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do that this year. You know, Zach Smith was a senior. This is a, you know, this is a guy, according to our numbers, had seven production points, played 30 games, started 22. Uh, and, and you know, the quarterback coming in, you know, or maybe that's the favorite in Bryn Davis and Fuller Roman. Those two, uh, or sorry, Roman Fuller and Davis Bryn do not have a single start under their belt. That's going to be some getting used to. Uh, you know, they're starting running back core. Not, 31 games played for Corey Taylor the second. You know, the next closest running back here, you know, that wasn't on, that didn't, didn't have any disciplinary fact, um, disciplinary issues, one game played, three games played. That's a lot of just veteran leadership in those close games that Nick was alluding to earlier that you just do not have down the stretch, that do not keep you, you know, feeling that you're going to be able to win this game. It's one thing when your senior quarterback comes down the sideline and says, guys, we're good. We can still win this ball game. And you probably believe him because he's been in battles before. It's a completely different situation when a guy who's never played in the battle like this before is going to say, have to say the same exact things going into next year. So for them, I think they're more of a five win ball club. I think it's going to be a rough year uh, for Tulsa overall. Um, and I don't know if you hit the recruiting trail, Scott, but recruiting wise, they are in the almost the bottom of the country. You know, they rank 127th in the country, 11th in the AAC, which is almost dead last. Uh, it's, it's not looking great on them for, for the recruiting trail going forward either. Uh, but maybe you'll see the benefits of a year that they had last year only start to take shape in 2022 or 2023. Not this quickly. Uh, but this is a 5-1 ball club for me going into next year. Up next, what might be the most interesting team in the world, Nebraska. Uh, you know, look, we thought maybe there's going to be some coaching changes happening here. Uh, no, no such luck. No coaching changes happening for Scott Frost. In fact, I don't think there are any uh, changes on the staff. So uh, I didn't see any anyway. 21st ranked recruiting class for Nebraska, fifth in the Big Ten. They had 12 transfers out, four transfers in. They did get a four-star running back uh, from high school in USC running back Marquis Stepp. Cornerback uh, Cam Taylor-Britt is their only all-conference player returning. And they do have four guys off to the NFL. Uh, Dedrick Mills, tight end Jack Stahl, offensive tackle Brendan Jameis, and cornerback DiCaprio Bodle. So uh, lots of talent leaving, um, some talent coming in. The recruiting class is obviously good, but uh, things are getting a little shaky for Scott Frost and Nebraska, Nick. Yeah, and I, I don't think I was uh, with you guys. Didn't really expect Scott Frost to, to necessarily be on the on the hot seat, but it's it's getting warmer probably because uh, you know what? How many losing seasons in a row now? And and I was uh, uh, certainly among those who had really high expectations for. This Frost. is when this is when you put a lobster in and you know <laughs> in the cold water and just start to turn the heat up. That's what's happening to Scott Frost. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, it's 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 a uh, they need to start winning. 
I think that's I think that's certainly clear. And uh, it's it's going to be difficult because you mentioned all the the guys who are leaving, some of them pretty important players. I mean, Wandale Robinson was the uh, leading receiver by far and ends up, you know, transferring to Kentucky. Uh, a guy, Luke McCaffrey, who pushed for the starting quarterback job, started a little bit last year, uh, ends up transferring out, kind of leaving Adrian Martinez, who it, it appears is going to be a, a three-time captain at Nebraska, which is certainly something and, and does have a lot of skills, has had, you know, uh, flashes of brilliance and, and you know, it has great games as a runner, but just has not been consistent enough to nail down, you know, last year didn't have that starting job nailed down every week. So uh, certainly some concerns there. They lost two former uh, starters on the offensive line to transfer. Uh, they lost, uh, you know, guys who they were probably uh, going to rely on a little bit on defense, you know, maybe not starters, guys who are major uh, starters, but, you know, some some too deep type guys uh, ended, ended up leaving for the transfer portal. So I'm, I'm a little bit concerned because uh, things – just had you know uh, a few years of of disappointment, and uh, we expected by now. I know Nebraska was what two years ago the preseason uh, media favorite in in the Big Ten West. Again, sort of how our numbers saw things, uh, we disagreed with that a little bit, and, and had Nebraska more in the mid forties, kind of about where they are now. But last season, we we expected them to take a little bit of a, a step forward, and and they just really, you know, part of it, of course, the the uh, uh, schedule ended up being an, an all Big Ten schedule was was uh, much more difficult maybe than it, it would have been had it been a normal season. Nevertheless, uh, you know, just haven't haven't won enough ball games and had some close losses. So maybe this is kind of like what I said with Tulsa there, is it is it going to be, uh, you know, lose close one year to win close the next? Are they going to be able to flip the script against Northwestern, lost a one-possession game? Iowa lost a one-possession game. Minnesota lost a one-possession game. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, beat Rutgers by a possession, beat Penn State by a possession. So kind of seems like it, it evens out a little bit there. So Nebraska is going to be difficult to project because of the the experience that's leaving because uh, the uh, talent level under Scott Frost has been on the rise, but that's been offset by a lot of these transfers moving out. So, you know, and Adrian Martinez, our, our, he'll jump up and have uh, a game worthy of adding a production point or two. He's got 10 additional production points throughout his career. He's a mid nineties player uh, looking ahead to, to next season, getting very close to a 100 rated player. And right now I have to say that's, and you know, he's overrated. He's earned those production points based on whether it's uh, being conference player of the week, whether it's rushing for a hundred yards, throwing for 300 yards, but part of that, he's just he's been almost a thirty-game starter, and and so over that time, he's just going to put up enough production to to end up building that rating a little bit. That being the most important position, you know, if I were just to to look at at 
his last season only and and write down my own personal guess as to what his rating would be, probably wouldn't be a, a 96, 97, probably would be an 86, 87. So, you know, that's going to play with our numbers a little bit. It's possible that Nebraska might be slightly overrated as a result of, of Adrian Martinez specifically, but also, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tricky because some other positions, they're not all that talented at the running back position. They might have a, a guy uh, when the season kicks off, who's, in the 80s, maybe, probably probably high 70s. Uh, Ramir Johnson, Marvin Scott, those type guys. Uh, at the receiver position, there's a lot of unknowns. I mean, there, there are some talented players. Oliver Martin, I know, is putting up uh, some really great transfer numbers, but Nebraska is his third school. They've got a, a transfer from uh, Montana, the FCS level, Samori Toure, who uh, you know has had all-American type numbers, but hasn't quite done it at the at the top level there. Even I, I forgot about Marquis Step for a second. He's he's a guy who's certainly going to be in the 80s, but he's you know kind of hasn't really produced it at uh, this level yet either. So you know Xavier Betts, uh, a highly rated true freshman last year, hasn't hasn't quite you know didn't didn't really show out quite like we expected he would uh, early on. Can't expect everybody as a true freshman to to jump out and, and be an all American right away, but you know there's there's just a lot of guys who maybe haven't quite lived up to the potential. Some other guys like Adrian Martinez who show it from time to time but have not been consistent, and then just the the team hasn't quite lived up to the expectations that that we've had for them. So Nebraska is a a very very tricky team. They are going to be very difficult, I think, for our model. Uh, they're playing a lot of toss-up uh, games. I mean, just looking at our very, very early projections, and not all of our Big Ten numbers are, are finalized yet, but I did put in Nebraska's uh, current schedule, and they are favored in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight games, but the largest uh, projected point spread is is eight and a quarter points, and that's over Illinois. They're favored by less than a point over Buffalo. They're favored by less than a point over Minnesota, uh, and they're favored by uh, less than a touchdown against Michigan State, Northwestern, and Michigan. Uh, they're favored by uh, about eight against Purdue. So, you know, that those are games that can go – Either way, a lot of close games, and, and sometimes uh, you get the break, sometimes you don't. And so, you know, maybe Nebraska can cobble together a winning record. Uh, if you're favored in eight games, you would expect, you know, on average, probably going to win uh, six or seven of those. Bowl eligibility, uh, getting back to a bowl, a winning season should certainly be the goal. Certainly, I think, is possible. But, you know, I, I'm starting to lose my faith a little bit on on Scott Frost it just hasn't quite uh worked yet and and will it all come together in 2021 it might be difficult to expect that i think it's i think it's possible but i i'm starting to get more skeptical about nebraska with with each you know obviously each year but you know week to week as well and and People, a lot of folks out there have beaten me to that. A lot of folks are probably have given up on Nebraska uh, a year or two ago. But, 
you know, I, I do think there's potential, but I'm, I'm, I'm starting to lose my faith a little bit. So I think it's possible they turn, you know, things around, but it's a, it's a pretty tough schedule and a lot of toss up games. So I, I think, I think they should get to a bowl. If they don't, then I, I think that maybe, maybe it's just not going to work under, under Scott Frost, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think they should. Seven wins, eight wins, certainly possible. Um, but uh, they're going to have to, you know, meet expectations to get there, and they they haven't done that under Scott Frost yet. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a, a rough road for Scott Frost at Nebraska, which is always it's always a tough thing when you get a legendary player uh, who was coaching really well at UCF, you know, quote unquote national champions, however you want to say it, all that stuff, mm-hmm. and, and then you get him to go back home to where he produced as a player so well, he's a legend in the area and it's not really working out right now, Xavier. And it, it seems like it's probably not going to work out for him. A good recruiting class though. So if they give him, if they give him a little leeway, maybe he can make something happen. But at Nebraska, you don't get leeway. This is this is the sport that they have. This is the one that they love, and you can't screw it up for too long or you'll be run out of town, and it seems like Scott Frost is about to get run out of town. Nick, answer a question for me. What do you? What is the chance that Buffalo upsets them on September 11th, which would be week three? Uh, I'd say it's about 50% because right now they are favored by uh, point. Two eight points against Buffalo. I think I think that tells you where Nebraska football is right now under Scott Frost. I, there's no way that Nebraska should be only a, a three point favorite over a MAC team. Uh, for the record, no, I don't no. think that. Or, I don't think that. Sorry, for a quarter of a point, less than. Okay. A I mean that is a pure yeah. coin flip, and it's it's too early. Uh, th- those numbers aren't fully updated for for either team, but but it's probably not going to change that much. Right. And I think that's the problem that we're seeing with Nebraska is that they just cannot put it together. I think we're seeing the second coming of Shea Patterson with AJ Martinez here, a guy with so much talent, so much ability, but every year we look at him. I mean, I think last year we talked about him possibly being a dark horse Heisman candidate and got, I, still think, I think his ceiling is, is Heisman contention, but he's just not been consistent enough to get yeah. anywhere close, obviously. Right. You got to get to your ceiling, you know? So I just, I don't know where they, they cobble it together this year. You know, they, not only do they play Buffalo, which is no slouch of a ball game, they go to Oklahoma. That's going to be a bludgeoning. I just don't see that being a great game for them. Uh, And really the reason why I see them not having all that of a great year is the big 10 was down last year. You know, only five teams in the entire conference had a winning record last year. Five. That's a down year for the big 10 as a whole. And when you're not able to capitalize on that and you still finish three and five, that's that doesn't bode well for you going forward. And I just, you know, I, I'm tainted. I'm one of those fans. I'm one of those people who think that Scott Frost, his seat is on fire and that, you know, they should get him out as soon as possible. Because I think, once again, it doesn't matter how much talent you bring in. Their recruiting class ranked 20th last year. It ranked fourth in the Big Ten last year. And we saw what they were able to produce on the field. This year ranks 21st excuse me, and 5th in the Big Ten. So another good recruiting class. But what is he going to be able to do with all of that talent that he's bringing in? At some point, the kids are going to get hit to the idea that this guy, for as good of a you know, coach as he was, he no longer is that at this program. 
and the recruiting classes will then, you know, reflect what is being shown on the field, which has been such uh, this far three losing seasons and not even close. I mean, you've gotten four and eight, five and seven, and three and five in his tenure so far at Nebraska. For me, I see Nebraska as a five win ball club at best. Uh, you look through their schedule, and I just don't see where they're able to cobble together seven games. I don't know if they'll even get out of their non-conference schedule, uh, which features Buffalo, Oklahoma, and, and Southeastern Louisiana with a winning record. Um, you know, And when they get into Big Ten play, I don't think they're better than Northwestern. I don't think they're better than Michigan. I think Minnesota will be a better team than what they were last year. Uh, they're better than Purdue, but they're not better than Ohio State, Wisconsin, or Iowa, which are the three Big Ten teams that they finished with this year. So once again, I think that's a five-win ball club, maybe six, and that might save his job to get to a bowl game this year. But I just don't see where they're able to you know, get to that seven or even eight win to make it a good year for Nebraska football. Well, well a better year, a good, a good year for the fans in Nebraska football, this 10-plus wins. But you know, I, I think Scott Frost – is on his way out. I think he's one of those guys who, because of what he did as a player, they're giving him a little bit more of a leash than what they would give maybe a a, a random or, or a new guy at the coaching position. Uh, I just don't like where Nebraska is going with at the moment. You, you, I mean, what do you think, Nick? Is he, is, is the seat on fire? I don't know that it's on fire. I do agree with Xavier that he's getting a longer leash than a random would have got. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that he he definitely has a longer leash, and that's part of why I've been so hesitant because he is, you know, a, a favorite son type uh, coach who, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, who's going to be better than Scott Frost that you can bring in right away? I mean, Nebraska. I, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to college basketball or, or really, you know, other sports to be honest, but. Uh, Indiana right now, you know, in college basketball, right, fired their uh, fired their head coach, and then it was like, oh yeah, you know, who, who's going to come in sitting NBA coaches and stuff like that? And, and no, who's going to, uh, you know, Indiana basketball is not uh, what it used to be, and, and Nebraska football, unfortunately, is is that way right now. So when you got Scott Frost, when when Nebraska was able to land him, you know, he was in the mix for Florida. Remember, he was in the mix for. Uh, UCLA, whatever jobs were open at that time, it was kind of a coup for Nebraska to be able to land Scott Frost. And I can't think of somebody that they're going to be able to, to go out and lure who's going to be better. I mean, Craig Bowl from Wyoming it seems like a natural fit. I think he maybe went to Nebraska and you know coached there or whatnot. Uh, is that an upgrade necessarily over Scott Frost? Is you know maybe you can go out and get a Lance Leopold from Buffalo or somebody like that. I mean, yeah, you might have better success, but is that really a, a hire that is going to get people more excited than, than Scott Frost? I'm, I'm not sure. So, you know, I, I, I think that Nebraska on the one hand is understandably uh, upset that they're not farther along right now, but on the other hand, you know, the path to, improving over what they have right now. I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily see, but I, I just wanted to, to, you know, quickly, I, I forgot to mention some of the stats there. Nebraska was a little bit all over the place. Offense was the biggest issue. They're in 76th in yards per play on offense, uh, 86 points per drive, 69th in success rate and 94th in, uh, or excuse me, they were, they were 33rd in, in success rate. So that was uh, the, the, 
positive there, but then they were 94th in yards per pass attempt. So, you know, uh, the the defense, I think, took a, a little bit of a step forward. It wasn't among the worst as it had been in early in Scott uh, Frost's tenure there. But, you know, they ranked in the 60s in net yards per play, 64th in EPA margin. 84th in net points per drive. So, you know, 83rd net yards per pass attempt. So this was a a, a, a team that uh, even though the talent numbers are not at a top 25 level through the, the full roster, it's a team that underachieved compared to its talent. They rank uh, 67th overall in team performance, 73rd on the offensive side of the ball. And the offensive side of the ball, you know, look pretty good on paper uh, at this time last year. So uh, it's, it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's, it's Nebraska is definitely tricky. All right. So the next team up here is Marshall and the big story at Marshall is obviously uh, the change in the coaching staff, doc holiday out. They were seven and three last year. Good record. But uh, Charles Huff comes over from Alabama. He was the associate head coach and running backs coach. uh, And then a slew of other coaches as well, uh, because, they uh, got the new coach in and kind of had a late jump on recruiting. The class doesn't look good. 126th ranked in the recruiting class, which is last 12th in Conference USA. Uh, seven transfers out, three transfers in. They did get a four-star, in a uh, former four-star in defensive back, Lee Anthony Williams Jr. from Clemson. And they returned a ton of all-conference uh, all USA players, quarterback Grant Wells, tight end Xavier Gaines, left guard Alex Millett, right guard Kane Madden, defensive tackle Jamari Edwards, cornerback Stephen Gilmore, and safety Nazi Johnson. Um, uh, PR uh, uh, punt return Talik Johnson was also a, a con- all-conference player. They lose a couple guys in the NFL and Brendan Knox and uh, running back Brendan Knox and right tackle Josh Ball, but uh, Marshall is going to be a fun team to watch this year, and uh, I'm really interested to see uh, what Huff does here as head coach Nick. So what do you think about Marshall for 2021? So I, I liked the hire. I, I certainly like the hire of Charles Huff. I think it is a step in the right direction for Marshall long term. I think Doc Holliday was somebody who uh, did a, a you know pretty good job. Was a, a took Marshall to the Conference USA Championship game this season. Uh, had led them to some of their better seasons as an FBS program during his tenure. But I was a little bit troubled the way that Marshall seemingly got worse throughout the course of the 2020 season. In week one, we saw them just absolutely uh, destroy Eastern Kentucky, which, you know, just sort of the the circumstances of, of 2020, that's a game that probably, you know, your average college football fan would not have watched in any other season. But because it was at the time, I think, the only game on television in that time slot or, or one of two, a large portion of the country got to see Marshall just absolutely destroy an FCS opponent 59 to nothing. Grant Wells looked like the next great, you know, Marshall quarterback was, was putting up absolutely huge numbers in his first career game. And uh, we, you know, remember Isaiah Green was returning quarterback starter or we expected to be a returning quarterback starter coming into 2020 he ends up you know leaving the team entering the transfer portal coming back and and so just really didn't know what to think about Marshall and, and that quarterback position and then I remember watching 
you know, Grant Wells just put on a show and think, oh, okay, that's why Isaiah Green transferred because Grant Wells, redshirt freshman, is is ready to go. And and you know, then the next time out uh, had to wait a couple of weeks, but they beat App State, and you know, then had a, had success beat top rival or you know one of their biggest rivals in Western Kentucky, uh, beat you know FAU a couple of weeks later. Looked really really good through early November. And then, you know, had a, a couple of weeks where they weren't able to play. It was their uh, second multi-week break and then shut out against Rice. Only put 13 up against UAB, held to 10 in the bowl game against Buffalo. And somewhere along the way, Grant Wells just kind of regressed a little bit. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you know, new coaching staff, you know, how is that going to impact a young quarterback who showed so much potential in his first start, certainly, but in in the early days of his uh, first opportunity to start the the early weeks, early games, but really kind of took a bit of a step back. And by the end of the season, looked like he was really, really struggling with confidence. I mean, against UAB, I, I think Marshall didn't even have a passing yard in the first half of that game and, and, you know, didn't complete a pass. And and so, uh, you know, Wells just looked like a completely different quarterback. I hope he will be able to bounce back. I hope, you know, maybe the, the change in offensive staff and in the coaching staff as a whole, hopefully will uh, put him on a path to, to get back to kind of the, the quarterback that we thought maybe he could be, but that offense, despite a really, really hot start to the season, and, you know, they, they put up 38 points against Western Kentucky, 35 against Louisiana Tech, 51 against UMass, 42 against Middle Tennessee, and then it just fell off a cliff. And so the numbers were uh, high early but came down, you know, a, a bit later. They ranked 48th in yards per play, 63rd in EPA per play on offense. Uh, they ranked 50th in points per drive. They ranked 70th in uh, success rate offensively, 53rd in yards per pass attempt. But that was offset, and they were a Conference USA you know, title contending team because they played really excellent defense pretty much all year. Top 10 in yards per play on average allowed. Uh, they were third in EPA per play defensively. They were first in points per drive. They led the country on defense and, and points per drive allowed. Uh, they were 12th in yards per pass attempt and, and then, you know, not quite as good in success rate. They were 39th, but still solid in, in every category, you know, somewhere between solid and elite best in the nation defensively. So, you know, they're going to miss some players defensively. Uh Darius Hodge, defensive lineman, edge rusher, is gone. Uh, Tavante Beckett, starting linebacker, is gone. Jalen McLean Sapp, also gone. Uh, all those guys are off to uh, begin their professional careers, and then they lost uh, Derek Pitts as well, as we mentioned, who is transferring to NC State. So I think that the addition uh, that you mentioned, the, the Clemson transfer, of uh, his name just escaped me here, uh, of uh, Lee Anthony Williams, is a big one. I think that uh, he's somebody that we didn't get to in our discussion of, of defensive back transfers a couple of weeks ago, but probably might have mentioned seems like an immediate starter, seems like somebody who uh, maybe will thrive in, in Conference USA, uh, just 
wasn't able to to carve out a, a starting role at Clemson, but looks like a day one starter at Marshall. And Marshall has hit in the past on JUCO guys, on transfers from Power 5 programs and things like that. It's going to be interesting to see if that will continue under Huff. He's known as a, a really, really good recruiter. Uh, it, it's a little more, you know, it's it's different, obviously, recruiting to Alabama than it is to Marshall. Uh, it's going to be, you know, how will his reputation as a recruiter, is that something that he's going to be able to actually raise the talent level among high school players, or are they going to have to rely on JUCO guys? I, I expect, you know, that, that uh, transfers like Lee Anthony Williams, like Jaden Harrison, wide receiver come in from Vanderbilt. Maybe there are, are guys like that, Power 5 transfers, who Huff had a relationship with on the recruiting trail uh, during his you know tenure at Alabama or, or earlier other places that maybe you know they'll be able to reconnect at Marshall. He'll be able to kind of short-term uh, raise the talent level, fill some holes that way. Maybe you know once spring practice is done in Alabama and a couple of redshirt freshman sophomore type players who haven't played in two or three years maybe start you know looking around and deciding maybe you know maybe I'll go uh play it at Marshall and and so you know I could certainly see Marshall being a more active team in the transfer portal this year and and maybe next year as he starts to as Huff and, and that new coaching staff starts to sort of lay the foundation uh, among high school players in the area in the regions that they want to recruit but Marshall's a very, very interesting team. They they seem to be capable of contending for conference titles year in and year out. I don't think that'll necessarily change right away. I think Grant Wells, despite his struggles at the end of last season, uh, they can build on him. They can win with him, even though they are losing Josh Bell, one of the best, you know, offensive linemen maybe in the country. I mean, somebody who was a, a 98 rated player, according to our numbers. They had a, a, the offensive line ranked fourth in, in our uh, offensive line performance ratings last year. So getting four or five starters back, returning five seniors, probably going to start five seniors next year, you know, uh, certainly something to build on. And, and they've got talented players on defense. You mentioned all the all-conference USA players coming back. So I don't think Marshall will see a big drop-off, but there is always a, a little bit of an issue when you have a first-time, first-year head coach. How is that? you know, person in this new role going to react? Are are they going to be able to, to keep everything uh, on that title contending type, um, you know, uh, trajectory? Or will there be some bumpiness in, in that first year? So there are a lot of unknowns with Marshall. I, I'm going to lead to the side of optimism, especially long term. Like I said, I like the hire. And I, I think that the, you know, schedule sets up relatively nice. There's not any unwinnable non-conference games. Every game in Conference USA, I think, is winnable for a Marshall program. But I think that this is a team that has a wide range of scenarios. You could end up with a very difficult first-year head coach, just some you know growing pains where maybe you slump back down to 500 because you did lose some of your big-time players. Or this is a, a potential double-digit winning team, Conference USA title contending team. I don't have a great read on Marshall quite yet, but I, I think there are enough positive signs that I lean toward optimism for 2021 winning season, that sort of thing. But I think long-term, uh, this should be a team that that will be a, you know continue to be a consistent winner in Conference USA. 
Xavier, what do you think about Marshall? Like Nick said, a uh, wide range of outcomes for them, especially with a new coaching staff in here. But they do have a lot of talent coming back. So uh, where do you see Marshall uh, finishing here for 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking at one of the, the, the you know, a top three or four best teams in Conference USA going into next year. Barring they don't take another dip like they did last season. I think a great barometer game for them will be that September 23rd matchup, the fifth game of the year for them at App State. I think that'll tell us a lot about how good this team can be, even in a loss competing with a team that's so traditionally good in the App State can tell us a lot how they'll perform in conference, you would say. Nick hit around the head. This team defensively, really, really good. Like, really good. I mean, we're talking about one of the better defensive teams in the country. The biggest issue was that they just couldn't put points up on the board. And, and I think that we won't see such a – such inconsistency from Grant Wells down the stretch uh, in this year coming up. I think we'll see more of a, you know, they'll be looking for more consistency. Now, Nick, you're absolutely right. It is the first year of a new head coach. Things could go awry, uh, especially uh, when you have an offense that's still, you know, at least in the skill position categories, it's a, it's a little young. Uh, up front, though, you know, you're looking for, once again, another consistent unit in the offensive line. Uh, outside of their right tackle, everybody returns. Uh, going into next year, this is a team with, with a lot of veteran leadership that, and that is why I'm not looking at the the coaching change as a bigger, as maybe a bigger deal as what it typically would be because of how much veteran leadership they have on both offense and defense. Uh, you know, we're talking about you know a defensive front that is almost made up almost exclusively of seniors that played last year, uh, a linebacker core that'll be mostly juniors and seniors going into 2021, a, a, a you know a secondary that'll be made, mostly made up of seniors going into uh, 2021 as well. So with all of that veteran leadership, you expect better consistency and more consistency uh, from a team that necessarily shouldn't be shook or, uh, you know, shouldn't uh, the boat shouldn't be rocked so much by a coaching change. I could be wrong, but typically with veteran leadership, it doesn't happen. Uh, once again, it's going to come down to whether or not Grant Wells can stay consistent. Like Nick said, this guy came out, came out, you know, firing on all cylinders throughout the first six to seven weeks of the season. And then he hit a a wall was that wall due to fatigue was it because of the fact that he's never played a season this long at such a high level before typically you talk to uh, younger guys in college in their freshman year especially when they become the starters at certain positions talking about how long a college football season feels in comparison to a high school season uh so maybe that it, maybe that's what it was that down the stretch you know he just got fatigued he just mental fatigue as well maybe teams were able to scout for him better down the stretch of the year as well different situations could have happened as to why we saw such a dip offensively from Marshall going into that second half or, or the last three games of the year however going into 2021 like I said I think this is a team that can compete for the conference USA title I think they're one of the top one of those top teams in the conference USA their schedule in my opinion lends a little bit better. Uh, I know we were talking about earlier in the episode how a later bye week can hinder a program. There's this October 23rd. Uh, but I think that their games are a little bit easier going into that bye week as opposed to the teams we talked about earlier. And so I think that, you know, and, and I think they can gear up for what's going to be a, a more hectic last five games playing FIU, FAU, UAB, Charlotte, and Western Kentucky. I think those five games are going to be what makes or breaks their year. So I think having that bye week right before that is going to be more of a benefit than a hindrance uh, with it being so late. I like Marshall. I think they're a nine-win ball club going into this year, barring Grant Wells can stay consistent throughout the year. All right, the next team up here is Stanford. And Stanford can be – they were 4-2 and two last year, but they're a team that seems to you know, spike up to the top of the Pac-12 and then hit these lulls too. So they're very, very 
up and down. They're never really medium, but last year at four and two was kind of a medium year for them. Also a medium recruiting class with 50th ranked recruiting class in the nation, a uh, seventh in the pack 12, two transfers out, nobody coming in. So they really don't uh, use the transfer portal that much. Uh, probably hard for a lot of academic qualifications for Stanford for sure. Um, but they only return one all pack 12 player in defensive end, Thomas Booker. They lose a lot of talent to the NFL here. Quarterback Davis Mills, wide receiver uh, Semi Fioko, wide receiver Connor Weddington, left tackle Walker Little, uh, center Drew Dahlman, right tackle Foster Serrell. So a lot on that O line and cornerback uh, Paulson Adebo, all going to the NFL. They do replace one uh, coach, new O line coach uh, Terry Heffernan, who was an assistant for the Buffalo Bills last season. But uh, it's been it's been strange, a strange run for Shaw at Stanford, Nick, what do you think they're going to do in 2021? Yeah, Stanford is is a team that is always pretty close to top of mind for me because of CFP winning edge, because of uh, our numbers. You know, we started this, we're, we're entering our fourth season here. So we've uh, made some improvements. We've learned along the way the mistakes that we made early on hopefully we've we've taken some steps to correct those but stanford was one of the big mistakes we made uh, a couple of years ago they were uh you know had been recruiting at a really really high level and our numbers in the first couple of years really overweighted uh, experience. And, you know, Stanford had a lot of guys who uh, came in with, you know, shiny, really high four-star, some five-star uh, 247 ratings. And, and then we were uh, giving a, a heavier than we should have experience uh, waiting to that. And, and so Stanford looked like a top 10 team, looked like, you know, they were, they were in 2019, our numbers thought that Stanford was, you know, the Rose Bowl contending Pac-12 champion type Stanford teams that David Shaw had, you know, a handful of, of years prior, and they really kind of fell flat. And, and last year we made some adjustments. Uh, our numbers, I think, did a much better job of, of capturing a team like Stanford. And, you know, four and two wasn't out of the ordinary, we might, we might have actually even had them a little uh, lower. They ended up overachieving our, our ratings just slightly. But, you know, looking ahead at, at uh, an early indication of where we do have all of our Pac-12, uh, you know, ratings updated and, and everything right now. And Stanford, I don't have high expectations. Our numbers do not like Stanford very much. I mean, they're middle of the pack in the Pac-12, which is expected, but they're probably going to, to fall pretty significantly in, in the power ratings here. I mean, 45th to end the 2020 season, uh, they're already down to 60th. And, and that's before, you know, maybe half of the teams that were ranked higher than them have been fully updated. So I expect Stanford might open the 2021 season in maybe the seventies. I mean, by, by, by our count, 14 players are, uh, done playing football at Stanford, whether they're going to be, you know, drafted off to the NFL or, or what have you, uh, that is double what 
you know, most of the higher teams. I mean, that's, that's uh, more than Alabama. That's more than, you know, that's on, on Georgia's level, basically with, with the amount of guys, there's actually one more right now than our count uh, of guys who've left uh, Georgia this year. And and we've counted one more than, than Alabama as well. So, I mean, you know, you, you take a, a Stanford team, in the mid forties, in the middle of the pack, in the pack 12, and they are losing on par with the, the most talented teams in the country. You know, a, a team like Sanford, the last couple of years, the recruiting has slipped a little bit. They have not, you know, they're not going to be able to fill those spots quite as easily as, as maybe they would have five, six years ago. And there's some key positions. I mean, Davis Mills didn't necessarily light up the scoreboard or, or the stat sheet, but you know, he's somebody that's that's really getting some NFL draft buzz right now. He's somebody that probably, you know, had he started more, had he uh, stuck around for another year, uh, maybe Stanford really would be able to build a, you know, prolific type offense. Simi Fajoko is a guy who jumps off the screen. I think he's somebody who's going to be a better pro than he, you know, was production wise in, in college, just has a, a ton of tools and, and, you know, just, but just didn't really quite uh, really come all together at Stanford. And, and now he's gone after three years, the offensive line, you know, we haven't seen Walker little uh, play in two years because of injury and because of preseason opt out, but I know, you know, at different points in his career had some first round buzz. I think that might have fallen off a little bit here recently, but he's, you know, a really, really talented former five star uh, left tackle might be a, you know, 10, 15 year pro type guy. Uh, and, And he's not the only, you know, they didn't have him this past year, but Stanford is losing multiple other offensive line starters. They're losing a starter on the defensive line, Thomas Schaefer, losing a linebacker, Curtis Robinson. They're losing, you know, three former starters in the secondary as well. So uh, they didn't have Paulson Adebo last year, but, you know, they did have Malik Antoine. He, he's going to be gone. They had a, a depth piece in Trajan Butler. They're losing their kicker, Jet Toner, who is one of the better uh, kickers in the country as well, Scott. So uh, they are... You know they're they're losing a bunch from a team that was talented but was not very deep and didn't necessarily play up to their full potential. In, in my opinion, uh, they have not necessarily you know uh, adapted super well with the times. They're not the same you know offensively. Uh, Multi, you know, what they, they would line up sometimes in like 14 personnel, ridiculous the number of tight ends that would be on the field. But uh, they're not necessarily bad anymore. They do throw it around a little bit more. Uh, they did still rely on the heavy game, uh, running game and, and had some success with guys like Austin Jones last year. But I, I just I don't love the way the Stanford team is built right now. And I just think that. I just think things are trending in the wrong direction. So even though they did have a winning season last year, it it wasn't great statistically. They ranked 86th in net yards per play, and that included 112th in yards per play allowed on average. I mean, big issues defensively. Uh, they ranked 120th in uh, EPA per play 
defensively. Uh, they ranked 105th in points per drive allowed, 107th in yards per pass attempt allowed, 117th in success rate against. And the offense didn't really, you know, pick them up all that much. They were 14th in success rate, but everything else, you know, was was top 25, top 40, you know, good, but but not quite to the level to be able to, to overcome a defense that was ranked in triple digits in, in multiple categories. So I, I don't have super high expectations for Stanford. Their schedule is weird. <laughs> they play K-State. They play Vanderbilt on the road, which they probably should beat Vanderbilt, but, you know, that's a, a power five team. They play all power five opponents. Mm-hmm. Uh, for goodness sake, they, they end the season with Notre Dame. And then the, the Pac-12 draw is just absolutely ridiculous. Out of the South, they play Utah State, Arizona State, UCLA, and USC. It, it is, it's the weirdest, most difficult schedule. I mean, Stanford might win three games next year. You know, they, they, might, they might win seven. Uh, they, they do have talent to compete on a weekly basis. They are the type of team that pulls off an upset that we didn't expect. You know, I mean, last year uh, they, they, they certainly, you know, uh, overachieved at times beat Washington. We thought that Washington team uh, was a top 20 type team. Most of, of last year was expected to be the, the PAC 12 North uh, champion before they weren't able to, to, uh, compete there in the in the championship game, uh, and Sanford beat them. Sanford ended on a four game winning streak with three, you know, four really really close wins. But I just I don't see them really carrying that over. Uh, I, I just I think that this is a team that's probably middle to lower half in the Pac-12, and just the the way the schedule sets up, I really do think this is a team that's destined to to be a sub 500 team and, and might might end up with something like three four wins uh it's just a very very difficult schedule a really inexperienced team and and i just don't like the way that that things are trending right now for stanford well you heard it xavier i'm paraphrasing what nick said here but uh smart kids make terrible college players and uh stanford is awful right uh, i mean i think that's uh pretty accurate as far as uh just quoting what nick said <laughs> obviously uh that is in jest but it does look like it's going to be rough for stanford you know they haven't been good for a little bit here shaw is a good coach but like like nick said they're just not they're not meeting expectation and they're not uh really adjusting uh to uh you know the, the the new era of football you got to pass that ball you got to throw you can't run uh you know seven tight ends out there you got to pass it so uh what do you think of stanford uh, in 2021 tell navy that then we know <laughs> we've gotten to the new era of football once navy starts passing it 30 times again uh but i, I have to agree the, with their restrictions as- are worse than stanford's you know uh that has to be kids uh in the Navy. So, I mean, and, and well, Stanford did throw, but they just, I don't know. I can't quite put my, my finger on it, but they're just, they're just, they're not good at it. Nick, you can say it. it's fine. <laughs> they're, they're not good at something they don't do well. Um, you know, I, I have to reluctantly agree with Nick. I love David Shaw. Um, and, and I've kind of grew up having a love affair with Stanford in the mid 2010s a little bit as well. Um, but I can't, I can't help but say that they, I don't see where they get to six wins or to a bowl game with his schedule. Nick alluded to the fact that they play USC this year. What he didn't tell you guys, they play them week two. 
on the road. Uh, that's one heck of a barometer uh, or one heck of a game that, you know, starts your year off with after having a neutral site game with Kansas State. How'd they get that one? I, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, and then to Scott's point, we get the Genius Bowl on uh, September 18th when they go and play Vandy at Vandy. You know, we'll, we'll, I wonder how many GPA jokes we're going to get in that one. Uh, but I, like Nick said, I, I really don't know where they cobble together enough wins to to get to six. You know, you look at their the first half of their schedule was ridiculous. Their first half of the season, I don't know how many games they're actually going to win. I, I'll give them one, and I think it'll be over Vandy, maybe two if they beat K-State. But UCLA is not an easy game anymore. Oregon's not an easy one ever. At Arizona State, we expect them to be better than what they were last year. And Washington State might be the only other uh, opportunity for a win there. I, it's not going to be really easy for them at all. Then you get to the second half of their schedule, and then they face teams like Utah and Notre Dame and Washington, who should be better than they were last year. Uh, and California, who's always a weird team, especially in at least good defensively, even though they may not be able to put any points on the board. So, I mean, three wins is what I'm comfortable giving Stanford, uh, looking at their team right now. You know, they lose all of the talent that really made them a viable option and probably is a reason why they even were a team that finished uh, with a winning record last year. I just don't see where they're able to do it, guys. And, and, you know, I don't want to be, like, super down on David Shaw and, and, and what he has going on up there because typically Stanford figures it out and, you know, puts together a, a decent team by the end of the year. But with their schedule and the lack of talent returning, I don't see where they're able to do it on top of that. And I think Nick – I don't know if Nick said it, but I'm going to say it for Nick. They're trending in a downward, in a downward direction. They are starting to fail on the recruiting trail because, yes, even though Stanford is a hard school to get in academically, this is the team that finished top 25, top 30 in recruiting year in and year out, even with the academic restrictions because of how good their football team was and how much kids believed in David Shaw. They're 50th right now in the net, you know, and seventh in the Pac-12. They're 39th going into next year and seventh in the Pac-12. You do that for long enough, you will become Vandy of the West Coast. And I, and I don't think it'll get that bad anytime soon. But if it continues down that road, that is where you're headed. And the, and the coaching change will be needed way down the line. Uh, so I'll say it, if Nick didn't, I don't remember if you did, but I think Stanford's on a downward spin. Uh, and next year, three to four wins tops. I said it verbatim. So we, we know how, uh, <laughs> how how closely you pay attention while I'm speaking, Xavier. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that I just know Nick likes to. I know Nick likes to, you know, not necessarily crap on a team. So I was like, maybe Nick's kind of on the maybe he say he kind I mean, of look. I, I, I said in what most people would say, what Nick was actually saying. So, you know, uh, outside of the you know, smart kids can't be good football players, obviously, the smart kids are some of the best football players. Uh, speaking of smart kids, Northwestern seven and two last season. Uh, you know, the 49th ranked recruiting class, which is 11th in the Big Ten, seven transfers out, five transfers in. But they did get uh, former four star quarterback Ryan Helinski from South Carolina. Uh, they do return one all Big Ten player in safety, Brandon Joseph. A lot of guys going off to the NFL, though. Quarterback Peyton Ramsey, uh, left tackle Rashawn Slater is going to be a high first round pick. Linebacker Patty Fisher and quarterback Greg Newsom all off to the NFL. They did get a new defensive coordinator in Jim O'Neill, who was the Raiders defensive back coach last year. So uh, what do you think of Northwestern in 2021, Nick? I, I feel somewhat similar 
about Northwestern as I do Stanford. And, and it might just be, you know, they're, they're built similarly. They, they have to uh, rely on a certain type of student athlete coming in. And, and sometimes everything works, you know, they, they can recruit well. They do have uh, some very, very talented players, future pros, potential first round pick type guys. But uh, those they don't have those type of players every year and they don't always come through at once. And Northwestern is, you know, a lot of uh, veteran talented players are heading out the door. I mean, they've got nine guys according uh, to our list here who are moving on, uh, including you mentioned Slater who didn't play in 2020, but is, you know, first round buzz type guy uh, would have, would have really loved to have had him back this past year. And then some of their, you know, uh, three year, four year starter type guys on defense, Patty Fisher, Blake Gallagher, uh, you know, Greg Newsom, the uh, corners, a guy who uh, I think I've seen, you know, fringe uh, first round type guy. Uh, they're, they're losing a lot of the quality players and, and Peyton Ramsey came in and really helped save the offense, at least made it, you know, decent. I mean, this was one of the worst offensive teams in the country in 2019, and they were not, you know, an elite unit by any stretch. They ranked 112th in yards per play, 88th in EPA per play. Offensively, they were 75th in points per drive, 100th in yards per pass attempt, 98th success rate. So we're not talking, you know, a great, uh, great offense by any means, but uh, would you, <laughs> but uh, they were the fourth most improved offense in college football, according to our offensive team performance rankings last year. Only, uh, or excuse me, well, they were the fourth most improved team overall. I apologize. They were the 17th most improved offense. So they got, you know, into the double digits in some categories, and they were still, you know, uh, more improved than all but about 15 other offenses in the country. So bringing in a competent quarterback certainly helped. So Peyton Ramsey, you know, he's not necessarily going to be a, a high draft pick, might not get drafted, but is a uh, going to be, you know, a guy who's who's going to be missed. And they brought in transfers. Obviously, Ramsey was one. And, you know, Hunter Johnson, former five-star Clemson signee, was uh, uh, basically a bust. Have to have to call him a bust. Just didn't didn't work out there. Halinski had some success as a true freshman at South Carolina, but he ends up losing the job as a sophomore. So uh, I'm not sure if he's necessarily a uh, perfect, you know, smooth transition uh, from Peyton Ramsey to become a day one starter there at Northwestern. He's probably still going to compete with, you know, Andrew Marty, who's uh, played a little bit there with, uh, you know, uh, some other guys a little farther down on the roster, maybe haven't had their opportunity yet. Not sure what the quarterback situation is going to be. I think they're going to be able to run the football pretty well with Cam Porter. Uh, I like what Evan Hole has done in the past. I think that they've got certainly some guys there, but they're losing, uh, you know, arguably their top offensive playmaker uh, in uh, RCB, the uh, Ramad. I'm going to try it. Uh, <laughs> Cal Bowman. 
Chicago Bowman, I believe is, is how you say it. So, uh, you know, did, did some really, really good things last year. Five production points, pretty high number for a receiver, uh, certainly in a, a shortened schedule. So uh, they're going to miss him. They're going to miss John Rain, who, you know, brought some production as a one-year transfer at the tight end position. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, Northwestern consistently plays pretty solid defense. They've been in the top 35 in our defensive team performance rankings every year going back to, to 2014, which is what we post on our uh, new 2021 FBS team profiles. We do have those uh, listed for everybody. But, you know, last year they were 16th on the defensive side of the ball. I have to think they're going to take a, a little bit of a step back just based on the amount of production that that's uh, that's going to be leaving, but you know perhaps with a, an offense that is methodical relies a little bit more on uh, ball control and time of possession than than most other offenses. Uh, they're probably still going to put up top thirty five type numbers for sure, maybe even top twenty five. But you know, I don't I don't know. I have a similar feeling about Northwestern as I do with Stanford, like. David Shaw, I respect Pat Fitzgerald, and both of those coaches are uh, one thing that I think is is uh, very you know very obviously smart of of uh, how they operate, but it was also a little bit frustrating for a guy like me who relies on you know these types of, of numbers and projections. They will change their philosophy game to game to you know, just, just try to, to win by even the narrowest margin. And so I'm, I'm starting to think I, I want to throw out Northwestern projections on a weekly basis, because if Northwestern is, is projected to win by more than a, a touchdown, you probably shouldn't, you know, probably shouldn't bet on Northwestern to cover more than, more than that. Cause they're going to win, you know, by a field goal or, or, you know, by a point or two or something. But on the other hand, if, if they're going up against, uh, you know, an Ohio state or somebody that on paper is just a huge, huge favorite based on the differential in, in talent, you know, we have, I think last year had Ohio state is like a 23, 24 point favorite in the, the big 10 championship game. And then, you know, Northwestern just kind of plays to where they can ugly it up enough to keep it close into the fourth quarter, maybe have a chance to win, weren't able to, to get it done that time. But there have been plenty of games that they are able to do that. And, and you know, so they end up covering uh, double digit point spreads on a, on a, a pretty consistent basis. So I, I think that at least, you know, mentally, we'll still publish all of our projections to our patrons each week. But I think I'm going to start Northwestern, maybe a few others, put a, a kind of a, an asterisk next to them and, and just say, hey, you know, kind of ignore this. Army maybe being one or, you know, teams like that, that just the, the style of play uh, that they that they use, kind of their philosophy, decision making doesn't necessarily translate to our numbers very well. There's a, a handful of teams I'm, I feel that sort of way about, and, and Northwestern is certainly one of them. But, you know, they're a team that will compete week to week, that will probably upset somebody uh, along the way that they, on paper, shouldn't have any chance against, but then they're going to do you know, I have the opportunity or, or, you know, maybe even likely to do something like last year where they should have beaten Michigan State easily and end up losing that game 29 to 20, you know, as a as a top 10 team, end up losing to a, a 
team with a, a losing record, one of the worst offenses in the country. So uh, they're a difficult team to project. They always have been, probably always will be, at least as far as uh, as long as Pat Fitzgerald is there. But, uh, you know, Northwestern, I think, is uh, I think is going to take a step back. I, I think just based on the high profile top level guys who are moving on to the NFL. And though they've, I think, picked up their recruiting a little bit, I just don't think they've got sort of the, the high level players in reserve ready to just, you know, keep, keep the, the train rolling, keep them competing in the big 10 West. I think they're going to be shooting for bowl eligibility and the schedule is manageable. They don't have, you know, the the heavy hitters in the crossover. They do play Michigan on the road, but, you know, Michigan's a little, little iffy, of course. Uh, and then their other Eastern opponents are, uh, what, Rutgers and, and Michigan State. So those are certainly winnable games. But I just don't know that Northwestern's going to be able to compete week in and week out against Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, maybe even Purdue. I think this is a team with maybe an eight-win ceiling. Uh, Bowl eligibility is certainly possible, maybe even probable, but I don't necessarily see this as a a Big Ten West uh, title-type team again this year. What do you think, Xavier? I mean, like uh, Nick said, Northwestern, probably not a team that's going to contend this year. They're a team a lot like Stanford, who we just mentioned, you know, um, who they come up to the Big Ten every once in a while and then they dip back down. So uh, do you think this is a dip back down type of year for them? Absolutely. Yeah, I think last year they over well overperformed for a lot of people in the country, uh, me included. I, I didn't I didn't see Northwestern in the Big Ten championship game last year. I, I thought it was, you know, we, for the most part, we thought it was a two-horse race going into last year. Uh, and they kind of just week in and week out were pretty steady outside of, obviously, the loss to Michigan State last year. Um, you know, I, I felt they completely blew out my expectations of them. Uh, this year, once again, I think it's going to be on, on the down swoop for them. Um, you know, and it's going to be simply because of how much talent they're losing. Um, we don't know how good Ryan Holinsky actually is yet. Um, you know, will he be have a Peyton Ramsey type year? Who knows? Uh, he hasn't been able, you know, we've seen him on bad teams so far. So we really don't know what he's going to bring to the table once he's with, you know, with Northwestern. The, the, the one blessing I will say for him is the fact that he does get a full offseason with them. That should help in his growth with the team, um, as opposed to last year with COVID not having a full offseason to kind of get it right uh, before the season started. I will say, though, with them having a down year, their schedule for me is very, very favorable. Uh, I really love their schedule. I think they could be 5-0 and by the time that they get to their bye week. I think they can, you know, Michigan State, Indiana State, at Duke, Ohio, and at Nebraska. I think they can win all five of those games. Uh, going into their bye week. Now, yes, obviously, you know, going down the stretch, they do have to play Iowa and Wisconsin back-to-back weeks. I don't like that for them. Uh, that also compounds in, in a month span where they have to play Michigan and Minnesota. I don't really like that for them. But Rutgers, Purdue, Illinois, those are also three teams on the back half of their schedule where I think that they can win all three of those games. So I think this is going to be a team that, when I say a down year, not getting to the Big Ten championship game. I think this is a seven to eight win ball club. I think that, you know, if Ryan Helensky does 
have give them a Peyton Ramsey like season, maybe they are a converse, having a conversation about maybe making it to another one uh, somewhere in uh, you know early October, mid October before they see Iowa and Wisconsin, which I think is going to be the real test for them outside of the Michigan game uh, this year. But they don't see those guys until the first two weeks of November. As far as you know, I and I think we've talked about this with a couple of other teams, but when it comes to recruiting the Northwestern, I kind of leave it alone. They are one of those teams, one of those uh, or. Uh, I was going to say organizations, but colleges that, you know, you know, waits to get guys to year three and year four until those guys really show you what they're made of. They're not a team that's going to recruit four and five stars at a heavy rate. Obviously, they're a highly, you know, academic school on top of that. Um, so that also has to do with it. But they're a team that it is once they get their guys to junior and seniors, we really get to see how talented they are. So I'll leave the recruiting alone for them. I think this is a seven to eight win ball club. If Ryan Helensky gives them a normal year, if he plays well above and beyond what we've seen so far, maybe they borderline nine or 10 wins. I still don't think that they'll get back to the big 10 championship game. However, if teams around them uh, have down years, kind of what we saw last year, they're definitely a team that can sneak their win way in there. All right. The next squad up here is Kentucky. And uh, look, this has been a well-discussed team on this podcast. Uh, Kentucky for uh, Nick's, uh, I guess, perceptive dislike of Kentucky, but the numbers <laughs> have matched up with, with what Nick has said about Kentucky. Uh, of course, Javier and I give them a little bit more leeway, but they were five and six last year, 34th ranked recruiting class, um, nine transfers out, which was bottom of the SEC, by the way, 12th, nine transfers out, five transfers in, including uh, one of Nick's favorite players, four-star wide receiver Wondell Robinson from Nebraska. So we'll see what he has to say about him. Right tackle, uh, Darian Kennard comes back. He was an all-SEC tackle last year. They lose a lot to the NFL here. Uh, A.J. Rose, offensive tackle, Landon Young, center Drake Jackson, Bedge Bo uh, edge Boogie Watson, linebacker Jamin Davis, and cornerback Kelvin, jo Kelvin Johnson all gone to the NFL. They get a new uh, offensive coordinator in Liam Cohen, who uh, was uh, the Los Angeles Rams assistant quarterbacks coach last year. So hopefully uh, they bring a little bit more uh, of a better passing game this year, a new offensive line coach from South Carolina and Eric Wolford, a new running patch back coach from uh, um, Wisconsin in John settle. So they are attempting to improve this offense, which is what needs to improve for them, Nick. So how do you see Kentucky going in 2021? So uh, I, I've said, you know, we've we've done how many of these now? We've gone through like 80 teams, 90 teams or something. So uh, I've said this a lot and I apologize for repeating myself, but I personally don't have a great read on this Kentucky team yet. But last year, our numbers did have a clear uh, read on Kentucky and we just didn't think they were that good, quite honestly, at least compared to uh, the schedule that that they were playing. And part of that is talent level. I mean, Kentucky recruits really well nationally, but, you know, like you guys mentioned a lot, uh, they're one of the teams that might be a top 30, maybe even top 25 national recruiter, but they're double digits in the SEC. And last year when you're playing 10 SEC games, uh, that became more of an issue than it would have been normally. And for every Stanford we've had two years ago, you know, sometimes things line up and, and we get a team like Kentucky that we do have a good read on. And it, and it turns out uh, pretty well for us where, you know, uh, the the sort of narrative is not the right word, but sort of the perception and a lot of really smart people 
had this opinion at the you know onset of the 2020 season, thinking Kentucky might be a uh, potential dark horse in in the SEC East, and uh, when they play good defense, kind of control the line of scrimmage and and run the football, and and sometimes that formula works pretty well, or pretty well for Northwestern last year, for example. But uh, we just didn't, you know, our numbers didn't see it working out that way. We were, uh, you know, betting against Kentucky pretty consistently, and more often than not, it worked out. So doesn't always work out. We certainly don't have everything figured out, but last year we had a pretty good read on Kentucky. At this point, I don't know really what to make. I personally didn't think that Terry Wilson was that great of a quarterback. Uh, and he ends up transferring to New Mexico. I do think that's a, a better fit that was just announced, uh, you know, right as we were getting ready to, to start recording here. But they lose a multi-year starting quarterback in Terry Wilson and don't necessarily have a clear succession plan. So I feel like I know even less, you know, about Kentucky right now at the quarterback position. They did bring in Will Levis from Penn State. Is he going to be the starter? You know, I, I don't know. Joey Gatewood was a high four-star recruit, really, you know, kind of a, a, a had a lot of the tools, Was looked like the the potential to be the battering ram running quarterback that you know had had a, a lot of raw talent maybe as a passer who could develop into a a big time quarterback we haven't seen that yet he did not take control didn't really challenge Terry Wilson for that job last year like a lot of people thought you know Bo Allen is a, a guy who uh, you know on on at least according to to the way we're calculating it everybody seems to have a different way of doing it this year, but is a redshirt freshman, played in only a couple of games last year as a true freshman at Kentucky. I've seen some folks, you know, who pay a lot of attention to the SEC and, and Kentucky think that he's maybe the the guy to beat there. And if that's the case, Kentucky will take a step back as far as a, a player rating perspective, the way we calculate things at the quarterback position. He's only a 76 rated player as a redshirt freshman. You know, Gatewood is is much higher as an 88, almost 89 rated player, but he's potentially in danger of, of needing a ratings adjustment down just based on hasn't been able to get on the field and, and when he has, hasn't really produced. Will Levis is an 80, just a basically average uh, you know, quarterback. And, and so is, you know, none, none of those guys, unless Gatewood kind of plays up to the level of his perceived talent potential as a high schooler when he signed with Auburn, uh, you know, none of those guys is really a significant upgrade over Terry Wilson. So I don't know quite what to think there. The offensive line lost two of their best players. I do like the running backs they have. I do think they're going to be able to run the ball. You said it, Scott, I love Wandale Robinson. I mean, I, I thought he was kind of the second coming of Rondell Moore as a true freshman at Nebraska. I, I thought he just had this huge ceiling, uh, but it hadn't really worked out. And, and, you know, he was the leading rush or excuse me, leading receiver at Nebraska last year by a mile. But Kentucky, you know, they do have a new offensive coordinator coming from the NFL. I think the offense will look different. I do think they'll be able to make better use of, uh, you know, a Wandell, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a Wandell Robinson type player than maybe uh, Eddie Grand was able to do in, in his uh, last couple of years at, at Kentucky. But I still, I just, I just still don't know because Kentucky hasn't 
in the uh, the Mark Stoops era really been somebody or you know a team that was able to make the best use of of a uh, super talented receiver unless you move him to quarterback like they did with with Lynn Bowden so uh, I, I just don't know what to make of Kentucky offensively yet I don't know that our numbers are going to give much more if any credit to uh, you know, who they will be starting at quarterback to what that offense is going to look like. So Kentucky is looking like a team that is probably our, our numbers, at least offensively, are not going to uh, give them much of a boost, not much of a bump, if any, until we know sort of what the offense looks like under the the new offensive coordinators. And they lose some really, really talented players on defense. So, you know, the, up front, Phil Hoskins, Quentin Bohanna, two huge guys in the middle of that defensive line that, you know, are, are we do have defensive line performance ratings, which try to capture those a little bit. But guys like that, you know, any numbers we have, it's it's difficult to really quantify the impact they have on the line of scrimmage in the middle of that uh, offensive and defensive line. Linebackers, two of the best in the SEC, and, and Boogie Watson and uh, Jamin Davis, and then two starting corners. You know, Kelvin Joseph was pretty productive and really his only season, and he only played about three quarters of the season at Kentucky, but they're also losing Brendan Eccles. They're also losing Max Duffy, who's one of the best punters in the country. So uh, there are you know, reasons to be pessimistic, I think, about Kentucky again. But, you know, our numbers do sort of do a funny thing where they don't shift dramatically. And even though Kentucky, you know, did end up having a losing season last year, had a losing record in SEC play, it it sort of depends on how the market will perceive Kentucky. If the outsiders, those who thought they were going to be a – you know, dark horse SEC East contender last year. If those same people or if other, you know, projection models are thinking that Kentucky is, you know, a, a team that should be ranked 50th or 60th, then we might be a little higher on them than most. And we might, you know, start to uh, weekly, other people see them as a 10 point underdog, we see them as a seven point underdog. Other people see him as a seven-point underdog. We see him as a four-point underdog. So, you know, it, it, there's a there's a certainly a possibility that Kentucky could be that type of team for us next year. But I, I think we might again be a, a little lower on Kentucky, maybe than than the general consensus. You know, at least until we see what that new offense looks like. Right now, very early, uh, they're eighth in our SEC power rankings. That's probably going to stay. They're, they're not likely to, to move one way or the other on that. Our very early projections, we have them favored uh, in their first four games. That is a good-looking way to start. ULM, Missouri, Chattanooga, and South Carolina. You know, you might argue that that maybe Missouri should be favored in, in that game, but Kentucky does get it at home. But things get more difficult in a hurry. You know, Florida, LSU, and Georgia before – uh, an off break. And then, you know, the back half of the schedule is very, very manageable. We do have them as a slight underdog against Mississippi State. We do have them as a favorite in uh, the, the final four games against Tennessee, Vanderbilt, New Mexico State, and Louisville. So it's a very manageable schedule, and it just kind of depends on what the market thinks of Kentucky as to whether or not we'll be lower on them again this year. Or I, I do think that there's a, a you know scenario where we end up being a little bit higher 
if Joey Gatewood wins the job and and if we decide to just sort of let it ride with his uh, maybe a little overrated uh, number that we've got, we're probably going to be higher on Kentucky than most. Uh, but if Bo Allen wins the job and and we're, you know, uh, he's a, a 76 in our player ratings and that carries a lot more weight, you know, then Kentucky's probably going to be in, in the 50s for us. So it's going to be very interesting to me to see where we fall on that compared to other systems, other people who are, uh, you know, talking heads, SEC Network, ESPN, what have you, uh, to, to sort of see where our numbers differ we often seem to be kind of opposite a little bit with Kentucky. So I wouldn't be shocked if we are again, but I also wouldn't be shocked if, if our numbers are a little more positive on them, just if a, a certain things, you know, break that way. Schedule is certainly manageable. So I think this is a team that will contend for a bowl bid again. Doesn't look like a team that's going to be an SEC East t- uh, contender though. Xavier, I mean, uh, are you going to stand for this Kentucky slander once again from Nick, or are you going to uh, join in? What What are we doing? Are you going to rip the Kentucky shirt off? Are you part of the NWO that hates Kentucky too now? What do you think? <sighs> yeah, uh, I got I to agree with Nick on this one. Oh, I came the, there it is. Yeah, I, I came into last year a little bit more optimistic. I mean, they have one of the on paper, one of the best offensive linemen in the country. And I think that's really what was one of the major reasons as to why I was giving them a chance to be better than what they were last year. But when you have so much NFL talent up front, you're bound to do something. You got to put something together with that. Uh, but, you know, they lose Landon Young. They lose Drake Jackson. You know, they only bring back Darren Kennard, who, uh, who was a part of that kind of that core group of, you know, NFL-ready NFL ready guys that was coming in the last year. Uh, and so I don't think that they're going to be nearly as good. I will say this, though. Their schedule allows them to sneakily get to seven or eight wins. You know, Nick said it right there. They can win their first four games. You know, they'll probably be four and three at their bye, um, four and three, three and four at their bye week. And then from there, it's a toss-up. I mean, at Mississippi State, at Mississippi State, they they that's a toss-up game. Tennessee at home, toss-up game. At Vanderbilt, should be a win. New Mexico State should be a win. And then at Louisville, we'll see what Louisville looks like by the end of the year. But with the amount of talent that they've lost, and also Louisville can't stop anybody. So you know, with those two things put together, that should be a win. That's you know, at, at worst, that's a seven-win ball club for me. Uh, and so I think Kentucky can get to seven wins, which would make them better than what they were last year. I think I'm just going to jump off of the whole like dark horse SEC East, you know, contender uh, bandwagon. I think they're a seven win ball club, possibly eight, uh, but they're not sniffing anywhere near the top of the SEC East this year. I think they'll learn that very quickly as they have Florida on October 2nd and Georgia on October 16th. Um, but I, I like their schedule for where they are now, uh, for where they are headed going into next year. Uh, I will say, Nick, and you hit it right on the head. Joey Gatewood might be one of the biggest question marks in college football. This kid has had more articles written about what he can do than maybe anybody that I've, you know, at the quarterback position from a guy who has not taken a single or has not taken many meaningful snaps, uh, especially in the SEC. You know, there, there were conversations that he could compete with Bo Nix when he was down there at Auburn. Then now they're, you know, he should well, have there taken were early and, and unfairly and just unfortunate that he's, he's uh, built in a similar way. But when people mm-hmm. started using the name Cam, Cam? That mm-hmm. was just that. Mm-hmm. That's just really unfortunate. It's it's very difficult to get uh, get get 
anywhere close to arguably the greatest, you know, one season quarterback in college football history, certainly in the top five, in my opinion, you know, that that's just a really difficult place to start for a guy who really wasn't, you know, hadn't played a lot of quarterback. Also, so. Well, I will say this, it, it's tough. not running. He's not running away from that moniker. He's wearing two at Kentucky. So, I mean, he's not running away from it by that by, by any means whatsoever. Um, but I, I just don't know what he'll bring. He's such a big question mark. I have no idea what he's going to bring to the quarterback position. Uh, you know, maybe they have Josh Ali there by week four. You know, they, they're, they're pretty good at putting receivers. <laughs> they're pretty good at putting good receivers at quarterback. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, from a Kentucky standpoint, from – do I feel like they are better than, you know, seven teams on their schedule? Yes. Will they actually win those seven games? It's to be determined, but I think that they can do it. And, and, I, and I'm going to go with a team that finishes seven and five. All right, guys, Boise State is the next team up here and wholesale changes on the coaching staff. Obviously, uh, Andy Avalos comes in. He was the Oregon defensive coordinator from last season uh, and then wholesale changes to the rest of the staff. All kinds of new coaches, a lot coming over from Oregon, but we got uh, Frank Mayo coming over from Utah State, Tim Plo coming over from UC Davis. So just all kinds of changes on the staff. Uh, five and two last season, 73rd ranked recruiting class, fourth in the Mountain West, which is rare for Boise State. Usually they're higher than that in the Mountain West, but you know, new coaching staff kind of happened late too. So uh, we'll see what that um, trans what transpires for this class. Four transfers in, two transfers out, uh, but a ton of all Mountain West uh, conference returning players. Uh, Khalil Shakir, uh, the wide receiver, left tackle John Ajoku. Uh, right guard Jake Stats, defensive end Shane Irwin, linebacker Riley Wimphy, um, cornerback Jalen Walker, and cornerback Kikalu Kanio are all Mountain West Conference players that are returning. Tight end John Bates and cornerback Avery Williams going to the NFL. So, uh, Nick, your thoughts on Boise State going into 2021? Yeah, it, Boise State, uh, somewhat similar to Marshall, but I think even more, uh, more consistent, more maybe reliable, dependable, is a team that despite having a first-year head coach, we expect will compete for a conference title. And and I expect fully Boise State to be our highest ranked Mountain West team. Doesn't necessarily mean, you know, guaranteeing they will win the Mountain West, but do believe that they'll start the season as our highest uh, you know, the, the highest in our power rankings. They ended last season highest in our power rankings among Mount West teams, even though uh, San Jose State was able to, to beat them in the title game. If, you know, as we often try to mention once a, a show when we're doing this, if this is the first time that you're listening to us, these rankings are based on our end of the 2020 season, who would be favored over who on a neutral field. If there was a rematch between Boise State and San Jose State the very next week, we would have had Boise State as a slight favorite in that game. So, uh, you know, th this is a team that our numbers respect. We think Boise State probably will be the best team in the Mountain West. They are losing some key pieces. And, and you know, John Bates is a guy who I know is is getting a little uh, draft buzz, was a, a senior bowl performer, former quarterback, though the numbers weren't necessarily, you know, big production numbers that you have to replace. Still a, a piece that will be missed. And Avery Williams is exactly the same way. Avery Williams, I don't think I've, I've really – he's come up much in conversation uh, with us, but 
one of my favorite players in college football, one of the best special teams players I have ever seen. I mean, a guy that that impacts the game uh, through special teams in so many ways, blocking kicks, returning kicks, punts. I mean, uh, that guy, I think, if, you know, if he stays healthy is always the caveat, but could play 15, 20 years in the league. I mean, he, he can can help a team in so many ways. And Boise State will miss him. Uh, miss him a little bit as a cornerback, but going to miss him a lot more as a guy who can be an impact player uh, in a variety of, of special teams roles. But, you know, you mentioned it. They've got a lot of uh, all Mountain West type players coming back. Uh, you know, every level of the defense has a, a Mountain West, all Mountain West player coming back, multiple offensive linemen. And then Khalil Shakir, I think, is one of the best wide receivers in college football. I mean, he, he uh, in the uh, CFF mock draft right now, he was just taken in the first round. One of the one of the top three or four receivers uh, taken in, in CFF circles. But I think that that's you know that that just shows sort of the ceiling on what we can expect from him statistically, and and I think again, uh, you know, a guy with a an NFL future, Khalil Shakir is is definitely a, a dynamic player, and they're going to be better at the running back position. They were, you know, most of the time running back is is a position that uh, unless you're just severely hit by injuries and lack of depth, isn't you know, a major question mark for most teams. You're going to be able to find somebody uh, to to give you some production at the running back position if your offensive line is, is you know, working well, if you've got a good play caller and all of that. But Boise State ran into some depth issues, ran into some injury issues. But George Halani is coming back, uh, hopefully fully healthy. He missed a, a good chunk of last year after being a a thousand yard rusher is a true freshman. Andrew Van Buren was able to get more of a, a heavier workload, was, you know, productive, was a pretty good uh, player that they could uh, lean on, but added depth through the transfer portal in uh, Cyrus Abibi Likio, who, you know, all he did basically at, at Oregon was score touchdowns. So he's somebody who can be a short yardage guy, can uh, give you a little bit more. Uh, just sort of a, a change of pace, but also uh, give your top guy a breather, you know, get, can give you a, a second or third running back there. So I think Boise State is positioned well uh, from a personnel standpoint, you know, on defense, at the running back position, at receiver, at offensive line. And then on paper, Hank Bachmeyer being a multi-year starter already uh, is, you know, he's uh, an 85, going to be close to a 90 in our player ratings heading into his true junior year, it sounds like he's going to have to beat out Jack Sears, USC transfer who uh, started one game or started at least one game last year, uh, but uh, ended up having some injuries himself. But it, it, you know, it sounds like in spring practice, they are competing with one another for that job. And and so, you know, hopefully that won't throw a, a wrench into things if they do decide to make a change or if it is a you know hotly uh, contested uh, quarterback uh, you know situation there but it seems like Boise State is poised to continue to be one of the best teams in the Mountain West and and you know statistically wasn't the best season for Boise State last year they were 71st in net yards 
per play. They were uh, 32nd in EPA margin, so just kind of a, a wide range of, of different things there. They were ninth in net success rate because defensively uh, they were fifth in success rate. They they uh, ran the ball pretty well, pretty consistent, 31st in success rate on, on the offensive side of the ball. So kind of difficult to, to know exactly what they're going to look like statistically because of the change in coaching staff, because numbers were a little bit uh, all over the board last year, and also because 2020 was was such a weird season uh, anyway. You know, Boise State was not uh, certainly immune to uh, having some disruptions. They had a couple games canceled in, you know, the last two of their last three scheduled games were, were uh, unfortunately canceled. So they were a team that, that, had to deal with disruptions like like a lot of folks. So it's also difficult to know, you know, how much weight to put into the numbers we saw statistically from them as well. But I do think that they are arguably the most talented team in the Mountain West. I would not be at all surprised if they uh, have the the top roster strength rating in the Mountain West when we get to that point and our projections are ready in, in uh, about 10 to 12 days. But certainly based on you know, team performance ratings uh, over the last few years, their three-year weighted ratings, their five-year weighted ratings. Boise State, I think, is is probably a lock for a top 40 power ranking in the preseason, probably a lock to be our top-rated uh, Mountain West team. And, you know, the schedule sets up pretty well. They've got a couple of uh, you know, relatively high-profile non-conference games. UCF, kind of a uh, back bracket buster type game. You know, G5 showdown. Uh, some of the you know two of the top G5 programs in the country to uh, kick off the season. They do get Oklahoma State. You know, big name, uh, a team that is certainly somebody they can compete with. I think BYU had such a great year last year. They're playing again uh, this year, and then the Mountain West. They'll probably be favored i would expect in in just about every mountain west game again this year and and i probably would expect them to be favored in maybe you know at least 10 games uh, maybe even maybe even 11 with with the potential of oklahoma state even though it's a home game maybe the the only one i would expect them to be uh outright underdogs at, at this point but even that they might be favored in so uh boise state is a a team that i certainly think is a mountain west contender probably should be the mountain west favorite and might have a shot at, at that new year's six bowl so uh even though there's always a little bit of concern with a first time first year head coach i, I think that uh the you know the program that that has been built there is something that has been able to be sustained through multiple uh, head coaching changes. And, and I don't necessarily have a big reason to expect that to be any different, especially since Andy Avalos uh, is a Boise State guy and a guy who was there just a couple of years ago. So I think it'll be a pretty smooth transition. And, and I think that this Boise State team, though, uh, you know, not going to be uh, sort of supercharged over the the top with it, you know, expecting them to be the favorite because I am always cautious with with first time first year head coaches especially. But uh, you know, this is this is a double widget double digit win type team. This is a conference championship type team, and you know, this could be your New Year Six bowl team from the from the group of five. What do you think, Xavier? I mean, Boise State the consummate top of the mountain West they're, they're still there, right? Yeah. Is it crazy to think that I think this team can go undefeated next year? 
and, and I know not crazy talking, at all. Not crazy at all. And, and I know you brought up the Oklahoma State game, but they've lost so much talent on that team that I don't know if they're going to be able to recoup uh, going into next year. And I think Boise State, oddly enough, having a down year for them, I think was maybe a good thing. I think you kind of make when, when you're on top the entire time, you kind of get complacent. And I think the the idea that, you know, last year, you know, they kind of got blindsided by a San Jose State team that can kind of came out of nowhere and, and, you know, really took, you know, all of Mountain West, you know, by storm, kind of woke Bo- Boise State up, you know. And, and I think that they're poised for a year where they, scheduling-wise, they can absolutely run the table. Um, unfortunately for them, they won't be playing a BYU team that maybe, you know, by the time that they played, it would have been ranked in the top ten. Otherwise, I'd be talking about, you know, possibly a team that would finish in that, you know, six to eight range uh, going into next year for Boise State if they were to run the table. But they still got some really good games here where they can make, you know, themselves be the Boise State of old, quote unquote, because old is like two years ago. Um, you know, at UCF, I think is a, is a big time matchup for them and they start the year there. Nick hit around the head with Oklahoma State. They get that game at home and I think they could absolutely win that ball game. BYU, even though they've lost so much talent, is still a good team. It's still a team that, you know, they, they get – uh, at BYU, which will be even more of a of a plus for them if they're able to win that game on the road. And you know, we were talking about San Jose, San Jose State in a you know in a previous episode. They avoid them this year uh, up until obviously the Mountain West Championship game. I think that does going to bode well for them. I think that gives them an opportunity to run the table. I think this is a team that can go to 11 and 1, 12 and 0 going into the Mountain West Conference uh, Conference game. I think the only game that I personally would have them as an underdog. It, it is Oklahoma State. I think they're, uh, you know, a favorite for me going to UCF just simply because of the amount of talent they've lost as well. Um, and UCF is also is coming off of a more of a down year than Boise State had last year. Um, so I like, I really like Boise State. I'll be honest with you. I think this is a team that can compete. I think Nick's absolutely right. I think this is a team that will have an argument if everything goes right for them this year. Uh, for a New Year's Six Bowl as well, or where they probably feel like they rightfully should be uh, going into the end of the, uh, in the next year. And, and recruiting-wise, somewhat of a down year. You know, typically they're a top one, the one or two teams in, uh, in the Mountain West, so finishing fourth is somewhat of a down year. Uh, still around the same kind of range where they were recruiting Ashley 73rd, where they recruited 65th in the year prior. Uh, but I like the coaching changes. I don't think that it's going to take – you know, I think it's going to be more a seamless transition for them. Uh, and it's a really big – win for them that, you know, they have a guy like Hank Bachmeyer who can come right in going into his junior year that is going to be allowed to make that transition that much easier. When you have a guy that knows the system, that can lead the guys and has been there for a while and is also going to be able to do it with his play on the field, that's going to be a major plus for them and the coaching staff going into this year. They should make it a little bit easier as well. I think Boise State can go 11 and 1, 12 and 0. I'm going to say 11 and 1 to be safe, but I would not be surprised if this team ran the table this year. All right. Last squad up for this show is going to be UAB. And uh, six and three last year, 115th ranked recruiting class for them, which is eighth in Conference USA. Five transfers out, five transfers in. But they, once again, another team that returns a ton of talent. A tight end, Hayden Pittman, left tackle, Colby Ragland, right tackle, Sidney Wells, defensive tackle, Antonio Moultrie, linebacker, Christopher Mull, linebacker, Noah Wilder, and cornerback TD Marshall were all all-conference USA players last season. And they lose a decent amount of talent to the NFL, too. Running back, Spencer Brown, wide receiver, Myron Mitchell, wide receiver, Austin Watkins, and Ed Tresher, Jordan Smith are all off to the NFL, Nick, but uh, UAB, a pretty good squad. What do we think of them in 2021? 
It's it's going to be difficult to project UAB as well. And it's it's I don't know if it this has happened a few times for us where teams of a certain style for whatever reason are kind of lumped together. And and so I feel like I'm repeating myself more. Maybe I'm just, you know, because I'm thinking about one team, it, it makes me draw similarities or something. But you know, I, I kind of feel an, uh, similarly about UAB as I do uh, Stanford and Northwestern. I mean, they're they're a team that is built on defense, running the football, even though they do have, uh, you know, UAB specifically will, uh, or at least has uh, attacked deep, uh, you know, with the deep passing game. But the main two guys that that they use to attack defenses vertically, Myron Mitchell and, and Austin Watkins, are both gone. And you know the the big time uh, sort of bell cow running back, all time leading rusher in school history, Spencer Brown, also gone. Now they do have depth at the running back position for sure. I'm I'm pretty excited about Dwayne McBride. See if he could be you know kind of take over as that a uh, bigger back kind of carry a heavier workload, but Jermaine Brown has, you know, uh, shown some things in the past and uh, Lucia Stanley is kind of a, you know, touchdown maker type guy, short yardage type guy. So I think they're going to be fine there regardless. Uh, but, you know, I, I have some concerns about UAB because they are losing sort of the, the uh, top players as far as talent uh, pro ready type performers, whether it's Brown, Mitchell Watkins, but then on the defensive side of the ball, you know, Jordan Smith uh, transferred from Florida, but uh, was one of the best uh, edge rushers in college football, one of the best uh, G5 defenders in the country, I would say, uh, just just built like, you know, you would put uh, sort of his measurements in if, if you were building an edge rusher in a factory, it, it would be Jordan Smith. And so when you're losing that type of player from a, uh, you know, Conference USA team, that's a big loss. Losing a player like Bronte Harris, who was what I don't even think he was uh, uh, expected to be a college football player, ended up at Alabama A&M and, and plays uh, football becomes, you know, maybe a guy who's going to get drafted. But, you know, so UAB is is in a very interesting spot where they're able to or have been able to to bring in guys from junior college, from Power 5 programs, bring guys up from, you know, FCS and, and uh, get creative with how they're finding players. And, and it all kind of worked. They were able, of course, we all know the story, to bring the the program back basically from the death and and have become uh, Conference USA champions. And and they were a team that ranked uh, right on the edge of the top 40 in our power rankings, which is very impressive for a group of five team. The first ingredient in our our power rankings are talent ratings. And and so for a team like UAB, who does not recruit at a high level uh, at all, even for, you know, the the G5, for them to be able to put up enough uh, production and, and, you know, team performance ratings and all that to raise their overall uh, talent level to the point where they are a top 40 type program, pretty impressive. So, so our numbers do now respect UAB because of what they've done on the field uh, and, they are, you know, a good program, but they are losing some important pieces. So I'm a little bit nervous about that. Offensively, they were not particularly 
efficient. They were not great in a lot of ways. They were 63rd in yards per play, 79th in EPA per play, uh, 77th in points per drive, 64th yards per pass attempt, 88th in success rate. They do bring back their starting quarterback, but my sort of, you know, own uh, sort of shallow evaluation of, of Tyler Johnston I thought when we got to see Bryson Lucero a little bit, sort of an extended uh, opportunity to play when Johnson had some injuries earlier in the year, I thought Lucero was was a little bit more impressive, quite honestly. And I think Johnson, you know, has has some tools, has a very strong arm. I know early in his career graded out really well in, in some metrics, but not not exactly my type of quarterback. It's just sort of a boomer bust type guy. Has a big arm, but you know makes a lot of mistakes. Isn't necessarily a, a pretty passer. And I felt a little more at ease when Lucero was in there. But you know how are they going to replace those receivers? Are guys like Trey Shopshire or uh, you know Rob Johnson, Rajay Johnson Sanders? guys who are developmental players from junior college from uh, you know uh, have have uh, played a little bit but uh, have not really quite uh, developed into starters on a uh, you know they're not you don't know uh, coming back based on on production how those guys are, are necessarily going to translate to being go-to receivers you know Shropshire is the only player returning with more than 300. Uh, receiving yards. Uh, they do have an all-Conference USA tight end in Hayden uh, Pittman, but that is a little bit skewed because he was really more of a, a fullback who just kind of got involved at the goal line, caught more touchdown passes than than you would normally expect. So I don't quite know exactly what to make of UAB on the whole, but I know they lost some really, really talented players from some really, really good teams. And they're a team that, you know, uh, relies so heavily on defense and, and running the ball that I think they're going to be able to keep games close. But based on their talent numbers, you know, uh, it's hard for me to envision this being a top 50 team in our preseason uh, power rankings. It, it's difficult for me to expect them to hold on to that number one spot in our Conference USA power rankings. And, you know, the non-conference schedule is tough. They do play an FCS opponent to start. You would expect they'll be able to beat uh, Jacksonville State, though they did struggle a little bit with an FCS opponent in the opener last year. And then they play Georgia. They go on the road uh, to Tulane, and you know after the Conference USA opener with North Texas, they host Liberty. You know that that trio: Georgia, Tulane, and, and Liberty. That that's a difficult non-conference uh, schedule, especially for a team breaking in some players in important positions. I do think that they will be, you know, uh, contending week to week. I do think they will be a tough out, even in those non-conference games. I think they, you know, will be in the mix again, uh, in, in the conference USA Eastern division, but my, my personal expectations. And I, I think the way our numbers are probably headed is to not necessarily have them as a, a favorite to get back or, or to win Conference USA, but you know maybe a, a team that's fourth in the in the conference and in, in our preseason rankings, maybe you know fifty fifth somewhere thereabouts in our uh, preseason power rankings nationally. It's a team that could be dangerous. It's a team that could uh, perhaps you know has built enough of a, a steady foundation under Bill Clark that things are kind of, you know, uh, don't rebuild, but just sort of replace and, and a reload. 
but I just don't know if they're quite there yet uh, based on, on talent. It's difficult to build so much through junior college and transfers and, and things like that. They kind of had a perfect storm a little bit uh, in building from scratch where they were able to, to uh, just sort of completely go in that direction a couple of years ago. So I'm a little bit nervous that now that they're transitioning to kind of, you know, those guys are graduating, those guys are moving on to the NFL. I, I wonder if there might be a, a step back. And, and I think our numbers will expect a, a small step back, still probably a bowl team, still probably a seven, eight win type team. Uh, but, you know, they're they're not going to be favored in, in those games against Georgia, probably against Lou, uh, Liberty. And then, you know, FAU is going to be tricky. Uh, Rice is on the rise. Marshall, of course, we've talked about. UTSA, I think, probably will be Conference USA favorite. So we might only have them favored in five, six games, and then you kind of have to win all the games you're supposed to and and maybe pull an upset or two to get to eight wins. It's possible, but uh, I I think that this is probably not a team that we should expect, uh, you know, to to quite put up the, the same type numbers statistically or uh, one loss, you know, as they did last year as, as conference USA champs. All right. Last squad up UAB Xavier. Um, you know, Nick just said he thinks they're probably going to be taking a little bit of a step back this season. What are you thinking about uh, UAB going into 2021? I mean, I feel like this has been, I mean, almost as good of a of a start from, you know, Nick, you hit around the head. They did a restart. You know, they weren't a football team after 2014. This has been a, a ridiculous kind of rise to the top of the Conference USA that many people probably didn't expect. I think this is the first time that they do have somewhat of a down year. I just don't see, you know, you hit it around the head, you know, losing the way that they win ball games, doing it primarily through their defense and running the football, I think is going to be, uh, it's going to take a step back this year, obviously losing, you know, such an important piece in your starting running back uh, who, you know, who was so good for you over the last couple of years. And I don't really know if the quarterback situation has been figured out. You know, Tyler Johnston was kind of the guy uh, last season, but, you know, Bryson Lucero looked, in my, just like you said, I, I, he looked good to me. He looked really good in that, in, in that ball game. So I don't know if that's even sewn up. Uh, per se, going into the into spring and fall camp, I guess we'll know more as the you know the, the spring game is a week away or a little bit over a week away, and obviously you know fall camp and things of that nature. Uh, their schedule for me is rather you know manageable for them, so I think that they're a team that can at least get back to a bowl game. I think they're a six to seven win ball club at the very worst. Uh, you know, I, I think you know Jacksonville State is going to be a tough game. I think that that's going to be a, that's a really good game to start the season with because I think that it's a barometer game. It lets you know how good of a team you really can have against a, a team in Jacksonville State who consistently competes at the top of their yeah, at the top of the FCS level year in and year out. So I think it's a really good game for them as well, and it's somewhat of a home game as well, being in Montgomery. So I think it's a really really good starting starting point for them. Obviously, the next week against Georgia, probably not going to be you know, nearly as good as, you know, I'm not going to be able to give the same kind of plaudits to a game like that. That's a game I expect for them to lose. But then after that, I genuinely think when we look at Conference USA, there's a lot of winnable matchups in here. I just don't know offensively where they get it done. You know, we, we talked about, you talked about how their running game was going to take a step back this year. 
it's weird that you, you know, it's weird that that's the case, even with their offensive line returning everybody. And this is going to be a very senior laden offensive line. Actually, going into this year, every single person on the offensive line, if I'm not mistaken, will be a senior, if not a super senior on this offensive line. So you expect the running game to at least not be completely abysmal, but not nearly be as good with you losing Spencer Brown. I think it's going to fall a lot on the quarterback play this year. And with that being such a question mark for me, I'm only comfortable with giving them a seven to eight win ball club coming into this year. I don't know if Tyler Johnston is a guy I can trust week in and week out. I don't think we learned that at all last year either. Um, I think Bryson Lucero was good. Oh, I think that Bryson Lucero is good enough to compete for the starting job and he may win the job come fall camp uh, or he might even win it in the spring. But with that revolving door at quarterback that I'm not so sure who's the better of the two. I'm not ready to say that they're going to, you know, that they're going to win the win conference USA going into next year. And I'm more comfortable saying that this is a round of eight win ball club. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for us on today's show. Remember, if you want to follow us on Twitter, please do so at Bogman sports for me at CFB winning edge for Nick and at Xavier underscore Trish to your for Xavier. And I don't think we have another show this week, so we will come back next week with what would be at teams 40 through 31. So uh, moving right along on the, uh, the tour here and we are going to get to the end. There's light at the end of the tunnel and there are some really good teams coming up. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to go over those top end ones. So we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. <laughs> <laughs>